hello. This is Swix back again with part two of our New Rips coverage. This time we're going to cover startups. And it's a special episode because this is the last episode of 2023. We are definitely looking back at the year with rose-colored glasses. This has been a fantastic year. We only started this podcast in February and uh, it's grown so much. Thanks to all of you who've listened and give feedback and shared it with your friends. And we actually managed to invite a few of our former guests back on the pod together with some new friends and probably some new voices that you're going to be hearing next year. So this is not a hard-hitting interview series. You know, it's it's not gonna it's not that kind of interview. It's not that kind of podcast where we try to go too deep. We we today we're just gonna go broad, and we're just gonna check in on a bunch of startups that we like and monitor, and we're present at Europe. So first up is John Frankel of Mosaic ML. We last talked to him in May for the MPT7B episode. That's episode 13. And I have to say that was one of the best performing episodes of the whole year. So you're welcome to go back and listen to that if you missed it. And since then, they were bought by Databricks for $1.3 billion. And actually, during the interview, they were in the process of getting acquired. They just couldn't say anything about it. But it's definitely one of the biggest AI news of the year. And you can listen to what it's like or what's going through John's mind back then, as well as now, today, six months later. Hey, Jonathan, welcome back to the pod. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is a, an interesting place to have the pod under yes. the overpass of interstate whatever it is. Yeah, interstate whatever uh, in the city of New Orleans. Yeah, it's, it's really good to see you. Since you were last on the pod, Mosaic got acquired. Uh, yeah, thank you. I, I think you really deserve all the credit for this. <laughs> no, you guys were sitting on that news and uh, we Sorry. didn't know what was going to happen. But uh, I, I, did, I did come away from your interview with a very, very high impression of like, you guys are in the perfect place, perfect time, and very makes a lot of sense to, to join forces with Databricks. Yeah, they're kind of, I mean, I will say we really didn't want to get acquired. Um, you like, did not? We, we didn't, I mean, we we loved being independent, sure. like we loved doing our own thing, Sure. Um, but this just made too much sense. Like, you know, they do data, we do LLMs, we both do enterprises, we're all a bunch of academics. Like it was just kind of, we couldn't think of a better match, and so it just, we kind of came to the conclusion like, okay, I guess we we can't not do this. Like, it's too perfect. Yeah, yeah. And you've done a bunch of other podcasts on the acquisition, so I don't, we don't yeah, need yeah, to yeah. retread. I'll send people that way. Just like, what's new in Mosaic World? In Mosaic World, honestly, like, we're just cooking. I think we've been a little quiet lately. Yeah. Um, or at least we look quiet from the outside. It is certainly not that we haven't been busy, and it's certainly not that, you know, we're not doing cool stuff. Part of it is that, you know, Getting acquired, there's a bit of administrivia involved. You know, we had to go through new employee orientation, get health insurance, um, you know, meet our amazing new colleagues. Um, part of it is like, you know, the field has moved toward bigger stuff and we've moved toward bigger stuff. So I think we'll have some exciting stuff to talk about soon, but my philosophy is always like speak through the work. Yeah. So I don't want to hype, That's I don't want to like get people excited, you know. You'll see the work and you judge for yourself. Yeah. You talk about the industry moving towards bigger stuff. Uh, what trends are notable to you in the, let's say, second half of this year? Everybody's figured out how to build LLMs. Like, it's no longer a coveted skill of, you know, a handful of people. But now we've all become LLM builders. The field has kind of narrowed an aperture again. And, you know, in yesteryear when we were all figuring out how to train ImageNet, um, you know, now we're all figuring out how to build really big, really powerful models. Yeah. And, like, that's now just an assumed skill. The rest is kind of what do you do with that skill? How do you build a product? How do you differentiate? What cool thing can you do that's different from everybody else? That's going to determine kind of, you know, what 2024 is going to be like. Yeah. I guess like a lot of people are banking on multimodal being like, well, 2024 being the year of multimodal LLMs. I feel like that's a little bit too broad a brush. Um, I don't know, like what's valuable in, in, in that front? 
I mean, it, so multimodal is going to be a huge deal. Like it's, but it's already a huge deal. Like yeah. we make multimodal models. The Lava Paper author I also interviewed on this pod. Yeah, like Lava's amazing. Like you know, I've been playing with it a bunch personally. It's awesome. And we've got Bard, and we've got Gemini, and we've got GPT-4V, and, you know, I'm sure there are going to be plenty more where that came from. Um, I think the question is, as with all good things, you know, cool promise is different than, like, delivering value. Yeah. And I'm really curious, like, you know, what do people genuinely do this with this in real production settings, in the settings that will actually pay off the huge investment that's made to build these multimodal models? Right. I'm also kind of curious, like, are we going to start to see some big open source multimodal models? Like... You know, we've got Lava, it's moving in the right direction, but like, is somebody going to you know, build something that looks a lot like GPT-4V or something on that trajectory and kind of start another arms race in that direction? Like, it'll be interesting to see. I'm, I'm honestly pretty curious, and I'm, I'm watching with bated breath for what everybody does. Yeah, well, I think uh, in our chat earlier today, you said you know, we kind of live in a diverse world where like, every company has kind of found its niche, maybe? If you want to go through that yeah, yeah, logic. I'm, yeah, I'm kind of like... I think there are, you know, there are the optimistic and pessimistic scenarios for where we go. Okay. Like, you know, I don't know. I kind of think there's a boring scenario where everybody basically is building these giant LLMs and maybe language, you know, image models or what have you. And they're all kind of the same. It's just you've got the Google version and the OpenAI version and the Amazon <laughs> version. And it almost feels like cloud providers in some sense. Like, you know, what distinguishes AWS from GCP? It's kind of, you know, where you are. and Slightly different consoles and <laughs> Yeah, it's like different interface and maybe you prefer one or maybe like you've been using one for a while and like you're used to it or your IT person really likes this one because, you know, they used to work at that company or what have you. Yeah. Um, that would be a pretty boring world, yeah. but I, I think that's unlikely to be the case. Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm looking at like, you know, all the cool stuff coming out of Gemini, um, you know, all the cool stuff coming out of OpenAI and then like I'm looking at Adobe. Like, they're Firefly, building, really? Firefly. They're building like a different model with a creative perspective. Like, I'm kind of looking at this and going, maybe we'll have a wide diversity of models and everybody will be building models, like just by virtue of the fact that we need so much data to build any of these models, yeah. Yeah. everybody's going to play to their strengths and, you know, use every resource they have at their disposal. And Google has, you know, you know, they have YouTube. I don't know if they're using it, but like that's a cool resource. Um, OpenAI has put a ton of energy into text data. Adobe like gets creative people. And like there are a few other companies where that came from. So I'm kind of like honestly curious if we're going to just see like really different models for different people. And I don't know, that's a pretty cool world to live in. Like that is great. We won't see this arms race. We'll just kind of see like diversity. Yeah. And we shouldn't forget uh, Bloomberg, which teased Bloomberg GPT, but that's a source of significant tokens, the financial world. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, I mean, my whole business on the Mosaic and Databricks side is, you know, helping people leverage the data they have. So I'm kind of, I'm excited about a world of diversity because, you know, it's not only do we have like these crazy diverse foundation models at the larger scales, yeah. but everybody embraces whatever they have. Like our friends at Replit do a code model and, you know, I don't know, Bloomberg does another finance model and like somebody does a healthcare model and like everybody draws in their strengths and that's a cool world. Are you bullish every company training their own model? Oh, sorry, that's, that's a stupid question to ask you. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think, you know, I'll give you the honest answer because okay. I think it's, you know, the, the business mosaic answer is, oh yeah, I'm super bullish. <laughs> like everybody should train their own but model. Like, you know, Come do it on Databricks right now. Like you should start from a base model that everyone shares, right? Like that's kind maybe, of useful. Maybe, or like you, you work your way up. I think it's yeah. like, there's a journey with playing with any of these models that may or may not end with training your own, depending on where you go on that journey. Like you start by playing with an API and maybe you do some retrieval and maybe you do some fine tuning and then maybe you build your own model. Yeah. But like it's a journey and I think there's a destination many people will get to that involves training their own model. Yeah.
Totally. Um, what other trends are going on that you're that you're liking or seeing or hating? Honestly, you know, maybe this gets to the question of like, you know, overall impressions of Nurips. Like, I thought this was a pretty garden variety Nurips in some sense, which feels weird to say in the age of you know Chat GPT and everything else that's happened in the past year. Yeah. But this felt like the most normal conference I've had since like 2019. Um, you know, I mean, we've had a pandemic in between and everything, but. Yeah, yeah. Like the past couple years, I actually internally at Mosaic, I always do a long write up of every conference and the trends I see. Okay. Like some public, some that are more relevant to what we're doing. Yeah. And like a lot of the write ups I've done over the past year or two have been like all about like the unease. Sometimes it was just like my write up for ICML 2022 was all about people capitulating to scale and the five stages of grief and, you know, how different people were responding, academics, people at Google Brain back when it existed, um, you know, all that stuff. And it almost looks quaint to think about that it was insightful to say people have capitulated to scale in this day and age where, you know, you know, tens of billions of parameters looks mundane. Yeah. But this kind of felt like, okay, the, the academics are trying to find their way forward. It's no longer just kind of coping and ignoring, but like trying to find their way forward. The industry folks are doing their thing. A lot more people keeping secrets than used to, but it's still like, you know, a lot of people also aren't keeping secrets and can talk about what they're doing still. Yeah. So it kind of felt like, you know, equilibrium. I don't know how long it'll last, but this was a lot less of a frantic and stressful conference than I think I'm used to, at least in the past couple of years. You know, I'm in a new role in some sense. I'm on the business side now. I'm on the industry side yeah. and I'm trying to find my own path. But I felt like a lot of us have changed roles in some sense as the past couple of years have, you know, have taken place and everybody's moved around and figured out what they want to do. But we've all kind of found our place at this point. I feel like, you know, we may be in different places, but the ecosystem, the community has kind of sustained with, you know, a bunch of new PhD students and, and all that good stuff. Like, it's kind of, you know, I don't know, it's nature healing in some sense from the insanity of the past couple of years and a reminder that, you know, we're all kind of small pieces in a much bigger, you know, ecosystem and community. Yeah, and it's still growing, though. Uh, apparently, the, the latest stats was something like um, 15,000 attendees. Oh, my this year. God. <laughs> oh, my God. I will say one big difference, you know, in the time right before the pandemic, deep learning was getting so popular, the conferences would sell out the day registration opened. Like, as uh -huh. a student, you'd have to rush to register yeah. or you wouldn't even get to go. That I don't think is happening anymore. This year is easier, yeah. And they're also live streaming stuff, you know, so. Yeah, but uh, it's kind of interesting that, like, I guess we've adjusted to the huge capacity and everything that's, you know, going on. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, even so with it getting bigger, it didn't feel that different, to be honest. Maybe yeah. it's just that I joined the community when things were already big. Yeah. But, like, you know, there were some journalists here, some VCs here, but that's always been the case. Yeah, it's always been the case. You always have, you know, uh, overrated, under, underrated papers. Uh, we'll maybe save the overrated stuff for later, but any, any underrated stuff that you want to highlight for, uh, from this year? It doesn't have to be at the conference, but just want to mind you for underrated papers that people should pay attention to. I'm going to flip this a different way. Okay. Because I'm, I'm not a fan of overrated or underrated, and I'm not, like... I'm not a fan of passing judgment on stuff. I just don't, like, far be it for me. I, like, one of my big gripes is, like, we shouldn't have best paper awards. Like, <laughs> and I say that having gotten one back in the day, so I feel like I have the ability to say that not just out of bitterness, but out of, like, recognition that it's dumb. Sure. But... Test of time, though. Test of time is great. Test of time is awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, I look forward to everybody using lottery tickets in 2029. <laughs> No. Um, if you're working on lottery tickets, you know, there's a lot of other cool stuff out there. But I think it's really, I'll turn that question into like, what areas should academics be thinking about? I don't know, what would I work on as a PhD student right now? Or what would I recommend a student work on? Yep. And all the biggest questions in the field come down to how you measure and how you evaluate. 
those are just such fundamental questions. Until we know how to measure things, until we know how to evaluate anything, you can't really even do any science. We don't know what we're even talking about. Yeah. And so I'm also thinking a lot about like synthetic data. Can we generate useful evaluation sets for all the little properties we want to find about an LLM? Creating data sets is really hard, but a model can help us do that. So I'm kind of curious, like, you know, can we bootstrap the evaluation process with synthetic data, figure out good ways to help ourselves build good data sets, and then you know, from there, maybe we can start to really take a bite out of the evaluation questions and get moving on the actual science of understanding what's going on with these LLMs. All that seems very academically viable. Yeah. None of those require huge amounts of compute. They require creativity, ingenuity, but that's an abundance in academia even when compute isn't. Yeah, I would say that that's actually one thing I've had a big delta on for this year. Yeah, tell me more. I'm curious. Synthetic data, I always thought it was you're just kind of sampling from a known distribution anyway that you know is imperfect and doesn't match human preferences. Um, uh, and it's Kanjun uh, from Imbue that yep. actually changed my mind on this. She's oh, tell like, me more. That's she's a, like, that is a smart person you're talking to. She's like, you actually don't want to match human preferences. You want to, you want to spike it in different ways and useful ways. And so... You want to synthesize data in useful ways that don't necessarily match human, human preferences. And once she said that, I was like, oh, okay, I, I think I'm actually sold on this as a viable practice. Huh. I would actually make a completely different argument, but yeah, she's yeah. right. So I'm probably going to make a wrong argument now because Kenjun is pretty much always right. And, you know, when she disagrees with me, it means I'm wrong. But, you know, the way that I look at it is synthetic data is not about, like, it, it's not about relying solely on the model. Like... We as computer scientists love the idea that once you automate something, you fully automate it. Okay. It's really about like how do you reduce the amount of work necessary to create something that's truly useful. Mm. Um, and so synthetic data is not about can we like whip up a data set automatically and then make a model better. It's about how can you use human time most effectively. And maybe labeling data or creating a data set from scratch is not the most effective use of human time. Maybe it's curating a data set that a model generated you know, to pick the examples you like most and edit a few of them. When I think about the millions of different small properties of LLMs we want to study, like in some sense the unit tests of LLMs that we want to develop, you know, that's going to require a bunch of tiny eval sets on specific really niche things. It's really hard for a human to just write from scratch. Nobody has the time or patience for that. If a model can help you do it and you can curate, you don't end up in a full feedback loop. You have a human there, but you're just making better use of mime. Yeah, it makes sense. I would just observe that uh, this sounds like weak labeling. And uh, I talked to Raza yeah, yeah. Habib from Human Loop, who actually pivoted away from, from weak labeling. Interesting. Tell me more. It, I don't know. I just think it might, it might have just been too early. It, I, I'm still a believer. <laughs> this, is, this is the thing about all of deep learning. Like, you never know whether you're too early. And too early is often six months too early. It's no longer the, like, you know, Yashua Bengio and everybody being 20 years too early. Or Schmidt Huber. And Schmidt Huber, of course. We have to salute, you know, Schmidt Huber as well. Um, it's not like being 20 years too early. Um, it's like you might be six months too early and some crazy thing is going to happen oh God. or like something will finally click yeah. and there goes that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Cool. We're almost at uh, probably your destination. The workshops tomorrow, you said are like kind of the highlights for you for, for near rips. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what should be my workshop strategy? I, you know, I don't, I haven't, I've picked out a few, but. Oh, wa wander. How do you do near rips well, basically? W wander and go to a lot of the poster sessions. Yes. Like the talks at workshops are always great, but you know, often, honestly, the workshops are pretty eclectic in terms of talks. Yeah. You try your best as a workshop organizer to put together a coherent program, but you know, presenters are going to do what presenters are going to do, <laughs> um, and you can't really stop that. But instead, you know, I love the poster sessions because like, you get students who are working on like really crazy creative stuff that isn't even ready for the conference yet. Like, 
you're, you're actually seeing things that have not been put out on Twitter yet. And that's such a nice change from NeurIFS where all the conference papers have been out for months, if not longer. Oh, wait, I observed the opposite. Things that have been on Twitter for, like, forever are now out of date and there are posters because that's how long it takes to submit a paper. Yeah, yeah. So it's the other but, <laughs> but, but for the workshop poster sessions, it's the workshop poster sessions that are awesome okay. because you're truly seeing stuff that was created this fall, may not be an arc yet, nobody's talked about it, probably makes no sense yet, but may evolve into something really cool. Interesting. And so, and you also, like, there's not as much competition to talk to the people, you can just kind of chill. So I love to, like, wander from poster session to poster session throughout the workshops. Because like that's my favorite part. I don't know. I can hear you know somewhat important people talk anytime, um, but it's like talking to the people and seeing, like getting a glimpse of what might be ahead. Yeah. You know, being able to say like, oh my gosh, I remember seeing the poster for this paper that a year later becomes very important, and like kind of asking yourself, you know, is this nonsense or is this brilliant? And like not actually knowing the answer, or having 50 million people on Twitter having told you the answer, that's kind of I don't know. It's it's fun. It takes me back to like what the conferences were like for me you know, when I was early in my career. Yeah. Like, you know, it was just kind of some random people coming and chatting with me, and you never really knew what was important and what wasn't, but it was all kind of cool and fun. You use a form your hypothesis and, you know, uh, search that way. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to tomorrow. If you find anything interesting, just let me know, and I'll go interview with them. Uh, I've been recording sessions with poster nice. presenters all, all, all the time. And I wanted to expose people who don't come to Europe's, like, that this is what's go what goes on. And there's, there's so much, I found, so much talent that, that does a lot of work uh, that you don't hear about them online because they're just not online or they just don't have the, the reach that, that you know, even I do. Yeah. Um, so, like, I want to give them that reach. Yeah, so. I think there's, like, you know, I'll say two things kind of to close up. One is kind of that, like, I feel like there's now so much hype attached to NeurIPS and iClear and ICML just by virtue of the hype that's attached to the field. Yeah. I don't know, this, like, feels pretty mundane and boring to me. Like, it's, a, it's really cool, but it's also just, you know, it's just a bunch of academics, like, walking around, having boring conversations, getting coffee, and, like, pretending to party. I, I definitely, my experience of... <laughs> pretending to party, I love no, it. No, I'll say that, you know, I'll tell it's you, true. Like, it's my so experience true. of NeurIPS last year, like, yeah. I don't know, these conferences have a reputation for being over the top with industry parties and things like that, and my impression was that was probably true in 2017. Like, that year is known as the... NeurIPS that broke NeurIPS um, for various reasons. I wasn't there at that time. That was before I was even in the field. But my experience last year, especially post-pandemic, was a whole generation of students had like heard stories and these stories had been built up in their minds and they were trying to live out the fantasy of what they thought NeurIPS had been like. So these very boring happy hours, people tried to turn into ragers and it was hilarious. <laughs> it was just adorable in some sense. Um, so, you know, it's worth remembering like, you know, there's the fantasy and there's the reality and the reality is, you know, it's a boring industry conference where people are, or academic conference with some industry component where people are trying to make money and convince people to look at their posters and get a few citations and yeah, lots of hiring, lots, lots of hiring, lots of hiring, lots of hiring. Um, I think things have really settled into a new normal, yeah. and you know, with all the hype and all the craziness over the past couple of years, people feel like everything is just exploding and changing all the time. Like you see those LinkedIn posts of everything has just changed. I hate those. Oh. I, I hate those so much. I hate LinkedIn. Um, if anyone is a LinkedIn influencer. I hate you. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of like, this felt like, okay, like, maybe there's a steady state again. Maybe we can all catch our breath a bit. And it, it kind of felt like after a pandemic, after all the technical development that's happened in the past couple of years, like, it's nice. We can chill. It's like, nice. we can kind of breathe a little bit. And there's something really nice about that. Yeah, love that. Well, uh, it's so nice to have you on again and chat and catch up. Yeah. Uh, Thank and you so much. It's good yeah, to see you. Thanks for jumping on. That's it.
In case it wasn't obvious, that was not up to the usual standards of our recordings because that was a walking interview. I was carrying these portable mics all over New Europe. And really, the only way to schedule podcast interviews with people, especially busy people like John at New Europe, is to show up with a portable mic, shove it in their face, and talk to them. And that's what the majority of the podcast conversations are for this episode because that's the only way I can, like, I see someone, grab someone, do you have 15 minutes, and talk through something. That's what happens. That's how we schedule interviews with a whole bunch of people that we would not get otherwise uh, new reps is too chaotic to schedule anything else otherwise one takeaway from john's interview which i want to highlight apart from the whole it's the new normal conversation it's the focus on synthetic data generation um, this is a recurring theme that is continually coming up from my conversations with literally everybody in the space and how do you do it right how do you do it with the blessing of open ai ByteDance was recently banned from OpenAI because they were considered to be distilling from GPT-4, which is not allowed under the terms of service. I've heard that they're not the only company that is accused of or being thought of or rumored to be doing that. Probably the right approach is something that looks like DeepMind's approach, which on Monday of NeurIPS published a paper called Beyond Human Data Scaling Self-Training for Problem-Solving with Language Models. And the concept is honestly not that complicated for the domains of math and for coding they were able to computer generate data for training on and they found that when training palm 2 on that synthetically generated data improved their results and performance on the benchmarks for those relevant domains it makes sense that you know we can scale beyond human data on those dimensions that's the trivially easy stuff and the, the question is how do you scale beyond uh, the verifiably correct if you listen to part one of our NeurIPS coverage, we talked about DPO, which is more efficient usage of existing information. So not exactly using synthetic information, but just as a sneak peek of 2024, we've actually already recorded an episode with Nathan Lambert, now of the Allen Institute on RLHF and RLAIF. And I think those approaches might scale beyond just the narrow domains of math and code. So next up is someone who's new to the pod, but not new to me. I've talked with Lynn from Fireworks uh, a bunch over the past few months, and they've definitely blown up in the inference space. So in some sense, you can think of Fireworks as a competitor to Together AI or Replicate or any other sort of inference serving platform that you might think about. But they have a really good team and they've been doing some very good work with Mistral. Lynn and her team have an amazing track record, which you hear about in the interview. And their customer list is pretty stellar too. So it's worth checking out and checking in on the inference business with Lin from Fireworks AI. Rewind, we can do all that because this will be edited. Um, okay, so who are you and what is Fireworks? Hey, Sean. We started Fireworks last year and me and a few founding engineers, we have been working at Meta on building Air Platform and specific PyTorch for five years. Uh, when we started PyTorch, uh, it was a framework for researchers. And we took the mission to build one framework for both production and research and streamline research production transition, operating PyTorch at huge scale for Meta and for the industry. So um, by the time we left last year, it is running more than 5 trillion inference per day across 50 data centers for Meta. And we feel like this is a great impact we have landed. But when we look at the industry, it's really, really behind. And we founded Fireworks to really bring this um, expertise to help industry adopt AI in the, in the fastest way, adopt the state of our best research in, into production uh, in, in a very streamlined way. Um, and why Fireworks the name? Uh, because PyTorch holds fire. 
and we want this fire to be everywhere. Uh, and that's why we come up with our name, Fireworks. Nice, nice. Uh, well, there's also Lightning and you know, Lightning Labs is is a kind of spin-off of that effort. Uh, right, right. And, and basically, it, it, I think there are multiple teams working on like better inference for PyTorch. Like, could you uh, elaborate on like how do you see the the landscape of sort of inference as a service companies? Or, I, I don't know if you consider yourself that or like infrastructure yeah. companies in general. I guess. Right. So. Um I think when we think about uh, inference optimization, there are different angles, right? I, I, I still think like PyTorch team, uh, when I was there and now, uh, now the PyTorch team, they are still doing a great job pushing for PyTorch performance optimization across training and inference through the PyTorch compile project. Um, the goal here is to, um, hey, keep the simple PyTorch programming API which is really good for researchers, and then take the heavy lifting of doing optimization in an automatic way. Um, but then because PyTorch needs to support and sustain a broad community, so the workload is much more diversified when they think about optimization. Um, and here at Fireworks, we take the same philosophy. We want to keep the simple API of PyTorch programming language and take the heavy lifting of the optimization, but more specific target at industry verticals, right? Um, for example, when we started company, we, we started from ranking recommendation. And uh, we have a product around that. And then later on, we were, uh, our customer we engage with, they're asking us, hey, can we help on Gen.AI? Because all the Gen.AI models are PyTorch models. It's, more, it's bigger, it's more complex, it's even harder to operate and optimize. So then we start a vertical on Gen.AI um, across large language model and image generation other modality as well. But because we focus on vertical, so we can afford to take a much more specialized optimization approach. And um, that is complementary to PyTorch Compile, which Python is driving for a broader uh, audience. So, so that's where we are. And I would say, because of our PyTorch expertise, um, we are the best when it comes to performance optimization across the following areas, right? The performance for GenAI models are pretty complicated because it's, there's no one bottleneck on system resource consumption point of view. The bottleneck can scatter across uh, CPU to GPU communication, the compute itself, memory bandwidth, and many other things. So we develop a very special scaling algorithm that allow us to tackle those bottlenecks independently instead of blending them together. So, so that's a very unique thing we are doing. The second is we build custom kernels across attentions, especially multi-query attention, MATMOL, or reduce, um, and those customer kernels outperform anything uh, in the industry. Um, yeah, we also do many uh, adaptive uh, technology that just when we run the inference, it performance will get better. The more you run the workload, same workload, it will start to adapt to the workload and become better and better. So across all this, and that enable us to be the, in the leading position uh, of uh, Gen.AI inference provider. Uh, just to give people a, a mental image, obviously they can go to the website, you have a self-serve option that, you, that people can try out. You mostly have a library of like existing popular open source models. You just started creating your own models, which we can talk about. That's, I didn't know that, that's super exciting. You actually recently 
enabled you 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 enabled uh, Mixtral in one day after the release by reverse engineering the the code. That's right. What's so, the high level of yeah, that? So yeah, so I think uh, we did that twice, right? The first time when Mistral uh, 7B got released the same day. Yeah. They released in the morning, then in the afternoon we we launched uh, Mistral 7B. I were the first to get work. Um, and, and this is basically like they release weights but no code. And then you have to implement code for, by guessing the... Right. For Mixtral, yeah. that happened uh, last week, they only released the weights <laughs> um, and, and there's no code. And then uh, I think the... It's, it's really fun for us, right? So because yeah. uh, thanks to our, uh, the technology uh, we develop over time, we actually build um, a slew of componentized um, libraries that uh, enabling new models is not every time built from scratch. Um, so, so because those, all these models share similar kind of model architecture uh, underneath, uh, with different components, and and that's why kind of we have the velocity of the speed, but it was actually fun to hack it. Um, uh, Dima, um, he goes by Dimitro uh, Zukov. Your CTO. Uh, yeah, our CTO. Uh, he basically took the uh, the llama model and the tried to retrofit uh, to the mystery weights, and it worked. <laughs> and we weren't. We were like thrilled. Oh, it's actually uh, working pretty well. But on top of that, uh, it was just a base model. It's not an instruct tune model. Uh, it's not really usable for chat. And then overnight, we tune a chat model uh, and uh, deploy it to Pobots and used by many other users uh, already at high scale. And the feedback is really, really good. Of course, now we switch to Mistral Instra as an official version, but we still keep getting users' feedback. Our you know, overnight tune chat model sometimes even perform better. Wow. So, yeah, so that's what we do when it comes to the velocity of uh, quality and velocity to high speed. Uh, we are the best company in the industry. Yeah, mentioning speed, I should also mention that uh, a lot of AI engineers listening on the podcast would be familiar with the Vercel AI Playgrounds, uh, which you are the primary provider for, right? I mean, that's the one that's most visible because they name you, but I don't know if there's any other that you serve that you can name as uh, you're the sort of inference provider. Here's just kind of a very highly selective list of, yeah, of, uh, of the customer. It's not, not exhaustive. Um, yeah, we, we get the marketing rights. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we already served home and yeah. they're doing really good PowerPoint generation. If you haven't used that, please try it out. It's really cool. Yeah, I used it for my keynote for my conference. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's it's basically I, I use like a magic trackpad to to serve the tome, and then obviously whenever I need to generate images, I actually generate it from inside the tome. So I was using fireworks without knowing it. That's fantastic. Um, we also serve the uh, Copilot kind of application. For example, SourceGraph released Kodi. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, by this time by the time this releases, we'll release the, our episode with SourceGraph and Steve Yagi. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's we recorded great. one. We're good friends. We also are the inference backend provider for Poll. That is a very popular chatbot, um, and Paul is building. Wait, does Paul just Anthropic or GPT? At uh, the beginning. Oh, okay, now and they now have their they own models. Are, they are uh, going big on open source models. I see. To provide a variety of um, different solving different um, okay. experiences, bring different experiences and uh, uh, much better performance, um, and of course, from their point of view, like cost efficient. There are many other big enterprises, for example, with DoorDash. Um, they're using us. Did they say for what? Yeah, so we we actually, uh, yeah, we released ranking recommendation uh, stack with them uh, to power their main business. 
because when you go to that website, there are a lot of ranking recommendation stuff happening, including ads and kind of a, a restaurant uh, search recommendation and so on. One thing I wonder about is for something like a DoorDash, and you know, I'm, I'm a bit newer to Rexus in general, um, shouldn't those be pre-computed? Like why does it have to be fast or live? It, shouldn't, it doesn't have to be live, right? Actually, there are a lot of dynamism, right? Because um, your, your personal preference may change, right? It's also a quickly learning. And uh, their distribution channel, their participating restaurant may change, the menu may change. There's a lot of dynamism in the matching criteria here. Um, and as I worked at Matter for a long time, to actually do uh, highly adaptive ranking recommendation, personalized ranking recommendation, yield the best performance uh, when it comes to the relevance and revenue. Yeah, I'm just asking like offline versus online. I don't know how sensitive this is to latency requirements. Oh yeah, know. yeah. I no so a lot of time. Most people like, of course, at you no know, big companies. Um, people do online training. But um, for those enterprises, I, I haven't seen the need to go online training yet. So usually training is offline, and, and then but it's periodic, right? You have to refresh with new information, and, and then uh, you, you, you launch and deploy periodically. Yeah. Okay, and uh, so I teased this earlier. Uh, I didn't know that you had your own models that you're also training. Uh, so you just released a clean lava. Uh, yeah. What was the story behind that? Right. So um, I think uh, everyone knows like uh, GPTV and the kind of the space of multimodality, right? Um, I think as I talked about in one of the interview when I was at Meta for PyTorch, at the end the moderator asked me, "Hey, what I think of the future?" My answer is multimodality, because we live in the whole world that it, it has so many different modalities across. Uh, image, audio, uh, text, video, and so many other things. And that is the mix of our, our world and the real world experience. Um, so yeah, we really, we really think multimodality will be a very in important aspect. So um, and we take the very popular Lava model from Microsoft, uh, but it's kind of, it, it has the kind of GD4 training data. So. Uh, we replace that with our own training data and, and make sure it's commercially usable. Um, yeah, we're super excited about this. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you'll be exploring more models as well and just putting all your platform uh, and that you're the fastest way to access them. Uh, we're here in Europe. You're talking to a lot of industry folks. Any other top of mind conversations that you're just hearing a lot that may be surprising to people? So I mostly talk with uh, many startups that is emerging. So number one, it's really refreshing to me that, but not surprising, that there's so much product innovation that's happening across the board. So much energy there, but a lot of those are built on top of Gen AI. Uh, of course it's not surprising, but it's kind of validating uh, fundamentally um, innovative technology can, can reboot a huge part of the industry. So that's really, uh, really refreshing. The second is, um, I think there are a lot more, hey, uh, how we think about working together, right? How we build a bigger, um, more interesting product for a broader audience together. I think those conversations is, is very, very interesting to me.
Yeah, yeah. Okay, very cool. And you're also here to hire or recruit. Um, oh, maybe we, put yeah, out, put absolutely. Put out a call. Who are you looking for? What's the profile? Yeah, we are we're definitely uh, growing very fast as a company. We are looking for um, system engineers. As, hey, we want to, we, are, we already have a rock solid um, in front serving, but we are scaling it quickly and aggressively. So um, anyone with cloud infrastructure experience, um, move really fast, join us. We are also looking for um, researchers um, who has a lot of experience and uh, understanding data a lot, understanding quality a lot, um, can get to kind of quickly help our customer get to high quality. Um, and whether through training our own models or fine-tuning the models um, and the building task-specific fine-tuning services, uh, those are the areas we are pushing really aggressive on. Uh, and of course, we are uh, hiring across the board of go-to-market people, uh, all the way from marketing, solution architects, sales rep, and so on. Yeah, yeah. It seems like you're scaling very quickly. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> cool. When I first met Fireworks, I was very impressed by their team. But since then, I've been more impressed by their execution. And my guess is that this will not be the only time that you'll hear about them on the Lane Space pod. So far in organizing and editing this podcast, I've been trying to bias towards reintroducing previous guests of the pod as a form of, you know, end of year check-in episode with friends, right? But so many of them actually mentioned Fireworks. You'll see later with Cursor and Perplexity that I had to put Fireworks first just because that many people have interacted with them, used them, uh, and love them or compete with them. I think it's a really interesting open question as to how much moat any in, any one inference or commodity infrastructure provider can have. The people who are not in the business say there's no moat, and the people who are in the business, like Lynn, see tons of moat in the software that they write, which obviously is proprietary to them. It's also interesting to see them start training and releasing their own models. And Fireworks released a Lava variant, which we previously covered in our previous NeurIPS episode as one of the best papers of 2023. So I highly encourage you to check out that conversation with Haotian if you're interested. So I say all that to preface the conversation that we're going to have with the next two guests. The first is a return guest, which is Aman Sanger from Cursor.so. We had them on in August to talk about their amazing rise to power as the AI-first code editor. They've definitely exploded all over my timeline. And at the time of the interview, I myself was a VS Code, Cody, Codium, Copilot, Codium fan. And since then, I've actually switched my own workflow over to Cursor because of the better workflow that they provide. But still, there's a lot of open questions around their business. Just like Mosaic, during our podcast interview, they were actually sitting on a fundraise <laughs> and uh, they recently announced their fundraise with OpenAI. So let's check in on Cursor. Okay, cool. So uh, I'm back with Aman. Hey. <laughs> hey, how's it going? Hard to catch you. You're a difficult man to find. I, I guess so. <laughs> You've been exploring Europe and you also announced your fundraise since uh, our last episode. Yeah, so we raised $8 million from OpenAI. Um, they've been a fantastic partner and I think it was a great decision. Yeah. Uh, OpenAI use you themselves. Yes, we have a lot of OpenAI users and we're growing pretty fast inside the org. Um, the thing that we like to say is like, Cursor is the means by which research, ha research happens faster, right? Like as we make programming happen faster and faster, as we make programmers much more efficient, we're making researchers more efficient. Um, and the bottleneck for research is really just implementation. If you can come up with an idea and then actually have the code, have the experiment all written for you immediately, um, Research will just happen much faster. And so that's the goal that we're working towards. And I think, you know, we're a tiny bit of the way there with a lot of OpenAI users. 
Yeah. What's the funniest or most interesting sort of feedback you get from OpenAI people versus regular coders? Like, do they prompt differently because they work at OpenAI? So they actually probably have less feedback than some of our other users who yeah. are less familiar with language models because they know what the deficiencies are. Right. They kind of know what's going on underneath the hood. Yeah. You, you, can, you can probably give them interesting input on what people are trying and failing with. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we do give them a lot of feedback on yeah. a lot of their uh, early alphas and whatnot. And so you've been tearing up the Twitters recently, uh, <laughs> yeah. putting in some effort. What are your sort of top messages that you know have been really resonating with people? I was I was a big fan of the KV caching tweet. Um, it's surprising that like not too many people. It seemed like not too many people knew about this before. Yeah. Um, so the, this uh, is, uh, when people learn about transformers, uh, it's actually not in the documented literature and the academic side of things that KV caching is a common industry practice. Yeah. You only find out when you talk to industry people that yeah, you have a KV cache. So like when you say KV cache, it's really confusing because the KV cache, like the KV cache can be cached, right? It's like almost like a double caching. But the key idea here is well, let's, let's look at all the big closed model providers, right? They all have like these chat models. And with chats and with conversations, like the first n conversation messages are always fixed. And that means like the first, let's say, like n tokens are going to be fixed. And that means when I put the next token in, why do I need to redo all the work of recomputing the keys and values for those first n tokens? Yeah. Um, and a standard inference trick for this is you take those keys and values and you move them from GPU RAM to CPU RAM. Yeah. You store them then, store them there for some period of time before they're evicted. And then if another request comes in with a matching prefix, the matching original conversation history, you just load those back into GPU RAM. And you save a ton of time uh, on compute. Your time to first token goes Let's And then because you're saving on compute, you can increase your throughput. Yeah. Um, and this is a trick that you don't really see in any of the open source inference yeah. engines. So you don't see that, but people implement it on top of it, yes. right? All the, all the uh, sort of my understanding, providers. like, I think... Together, for example, I, I think is implementing this. Yeah, um, and I just talked to uh, Lin Tao from Fireworks as well. Just yeah, doing that. Um, so uh, one of the interesting, oh, I always assume that it's because of personalization. Like, hey, in my system prompt, I have today's date. I'm gonna mm. have to update that once a day. Fine, like no, no big deal. Yeah. Uh, but maybe if people have more customized um, prompts, like you know, you said there's some kind of cache eviction policy where if there's like a 95% match, you use the cache. Um, yeah, like I don't know what don't the know. exact eviction yeah. policy would be. You could probably use like assume you have I don't know like a hundred gigabytes right. of space per device. Probably a lot more actually. You probably have up to a terabyte of CPU RAM uh, per device um, or maybe per machine. Um, you could just do something like least recently used, uh, and then if you start to use up more space than exists on device, you just evict the least recently used uh, request. You are a consumer mostly of the GPT-4 API. Yes. They don't really expose this they don't. in the API. How does this affect you? I think it's actually pretty important to understand what's going on underneath the hood to take like advantage of these things. Yeah. So like we use uh, dedicated instances. Yeah. Um, and so they expose their capability to you, like somewhat. But like the, the key thing is they, they expose very little actually. And and is it weird? I mean, yeah. But like <laughs> the only way that you can really take advantage of this, and I, I kind of had another tweet about this, is like you need to really understand what's going on underneath the hood so like you can then plan for when memory utilization is spiking based on uh, how many tokens you're currently using or how much memory the instance you can speculate is or when are you getting a lot of cache hits so you don't expect to be using as much compute which means you can then increase your throughput without worrying about things going latency spiking or yeah. things going down yeah uh, and I don't know if you've uh, I, I've 
taken this thought to quite an extreme level. Like you can use this to cache rag stuff, like rag results. Yeah. And, and, I, uh, like just general prompts, right? You like, can, you can. So I, I did have another tweet about this where there's, no one's done this to the best of my knowledge and I think this would be very, very hard to do. Um, but you could technically cache the entirety of some corpus um, <laughs> in something like S3 if you have a model which has smaller sized keys and values. So this would be, instead of full multi-head attention, it could be something like uh, grouped query attention, which is, I think, usually around 8x smaller, or even multi-query, which can be 64 to 250x, 256x smaller. Um, and so then what that means is you can actually read the weights from blob storage if you have everything like really optimized. Um, you can read it into RAM a decent bit faster than uh, it would actually take to compute, recompute the key KV cache. Yeah. Um, I think that'll be very tricky to implement. And I think there are actually not too many use cases where it would be useful. I think the code bases, there's actually one where it could be. Yeah. Um, my, my final like observation on this is um, OpenAI had the opportunity to offer caching to people with the assistance API. Mm. And they, again, they're charging you for the whole thing every single time mm. you send a message to the assistance API. And like, is it like, I, I find it like, is there is there some explanation? Is there, is, is it just like a, we can do it, so we're, we're gonna do it? I mean, it? You, it's tricky when you're not like using, I don't know what they're doing underneath the hood, but if you assume they're doing something like uh, caching at a machine level, yeah. like, so I, these I, are serverless I assuming, endpoints. I'm assuming right? they're not, they're serverless, right? So you have to load, unload, and that costs, costs yeah. us a cold start, and that's a problem for, for them. So it's like really trivial when you have like server endpoints, server-based endpoints, right. or like dedicated instances. Right. Um, it's probably quite tricky to get right. I, I mean, I, I'm not really confident as to like what their decision making was there. Yeah, yeah. But I'd imagine it's much more difficult to get right. Got it. What was your second tweet that, you, that we prepped? Uh, well, one of them that I, I thought was interesting was uh, generating a retrieval data set. Um, yes. Yeah. Synthetic data. Using synthetic data. I mean, the key thing here is there's a lot of using synthetic data to, like the outputs of models actually train uh, weaker models. And so a lot of people have done this with GPT-4 outputs. This is actually, I think, that requires, like, I guess, the claim that you can train on GPT-4 and outputs and, and you'll still get, like, pretty good models out of that. Yeah, uh, we're, we're, yeah which, which seems reasonable, but we're actually relying on a weaker claim. Because all we're doing is, um, I mean, people can check out the tweet to see it in more detail, but GPT-4 is quite good at this task of um, ordering four, like four candidate documents um, given a query as to the relevance of the query, right? That's like, there have been papers that show this like list-wise re-ranking, um, and it works really well. So if you do that for enough documents, um, and you do it in an efficient way, which we kind of use uh, a variant of ELO called TrueScale to do, uh, you can then get a really high quality re-ranking data set, a really high quality ordering over, let's say, a hundred candidate uh, documents given some query. Uh, so we use GPT-4 kind of in the loop for doing a bunch of different synthetic data stuff. This is, this is one of them. Um, and I feel like more people should be doing it for this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think um, people are exploring synthetic data a lot at the uh, at the back half of this year for um, choosing like models as judges, mod models yeah. as synthetic data generators. Yeah, I think um, models as judges is like almost certainly going to work. If you like use chain of thought, it's a very easy task. I think this is a very yeah. easy task. Like, this is how we do RLEIF. Yeah, yeah. Though it's interesting, RLEIF, I was looking at that paper again, and it seemed to really be good for, if you, if you look at it compared to RLHF, it, was, it helped with 
harmlessness. It didn't. I I, I don't yes. believe it actually helped in healthfulness. No, but it, it helped to achieve the Pareto optimal trade-off, which is it did, yeah. no, no well, decline in the other two. I think then, if you compare it to RLHF. Uh, it was it was pretty neck and neck. I don't think there's a statistically significant difference with with helpfulness at least. But it is interesting. Like RLAIF is just effectively getting better at censoring the model uh, rather than improving its like almost like capabilities, right? It's it's helpfulness. Well, RLHF like like, like it'll, it'll do it as well as RLHF, but it doesn't offer anything additional there, which kind of makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, First impressions on Europe's. I mean, very interesting. Lots of very smart people. Yeah. Uh, I've had lots of very interesting conversations. Um, I'll probably be back next year. Uh, I was kind of lukewarm on it coming in because everyone goes like, "Oh, it's a big conference. Yeah. Like, it's it's hard to navigate and all that." But then you like run into a few papers, uh, people authors that are interesting, and then like you're here, like a bunch of other people I want to meet are all here. Like it's a nice way to uh, get everyone in one place and just yeah. catch up on Definitely. everything. The house parties are fun. <laughs> uh, yesterday was just a lot of parties. Yeah, and yeah. I don't know. It's it's to me. It's to me. It's uh, very overwhelming. But um, I think the more uh, exposures or epochs that you have on Neurips, the the better. Um, and I'm basically trying to doing this audio experience to try to bring people in because there's many people who have just never come. Yeah. Uh, but they should get a sense of what's going on here. Yeah. Like I find there are people here who you've never heard of on Twitter. They're not on Twitter. Yes. They just know more than because yeah. they've just done the work. Exactly. Like reading, yeah. They read every everything. <laughs> have yeah. you seen the data comps uh, paper? Uh, I'll, I'll walk you over and show you. Okay. But, uh, I, was uh, I was very impressed by their work. Uh, like um, these people, they, they just come out of nowhere, and once a year they do this. Yeah, and this is the place to find them. So that's why I'm here. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. Yeah. Right? There's really such a good congregation of like very good researchers. Right? Yeah. Are you trying to hire them? Oh, yeah, maybe let's make a hiring call. You're yeah. Right. I mean, look, I think right now we're a very small, very strong team. We were five last time. Uh, yeah, so we are seven now. Um, only six engineers, though. Yeah. So very you're small. More, you're more millions than people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, look, we're a very small team, and we're looking to grow the team, but we're looking to grow it like very carefully and slowly, because I think a lot of uh, companies fall into the pitfall of hiring too quickly. Yes. Um, so, yeah, we're really looking for fantastic people. We're, we're seeing, like, an incredible traction, incredible growth. There's a lot more really interesting problems to tackle, and um, people should check out our blog post on that because I think like it's very exciting. The, kinds the of fundraising post? Uh, yeah, there's a fundraising post, and then we kind of link there. It's there's a problems post. If you go to nesphere.co slash problems twenty twenty three, there's lots of interesting work to do. Yeah, um, and I think we have a really good chance of being the team that can crack CodeGen. So it's a really exciting space. Uh, I think you'd be joining a very small, strong team. And so yeah, if you're interested in working with us at Cursor. would love to talk. Uh, you can just reach out to Amon at Cursor.sh. Nice. nice. SH? Oh, okay. Yeah, well... I thought it was so... We might try to get .ai or .com. We'll yeah. see. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, thanks for jumping on. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. So there again, you see one of the topics that I highlighted from my conversation with John Frankel, which is why I put it at the start, which is synthetic data generation in all its glory. And for Aman and Cursor, they're particularly interested in LLMs as rankers or LLMs as judges. And that seems to be generally a more blessed way than directly distilling the output of LLMs. And you can look out for our episode with Nathan in 2024 to go deeper on that. Another founder that recently raised that is the talk of the AI community, particularly with Guillermo Rausch and Toby Lutka recently endorsing the product, is Arvid Srinivas or Perplexity AI, which started off being, maybe we will construct SQL queries for you. Then they went to, maybe we'll construct SQL queries on our Twitter screen for you. 
And now they've blown up as a potential Google replacement, which is a huge increase in ambition, but they have the web app and the mobile apps to prove it. So here's Arvind with Perplexity. And so congrats on all your success with Perplexity. Uh, the two most recent accomplishments which I have seen, at least on my feed, is one, you hit a million people on your mobile app. That's yeah, huge. On both platforms. Uh, yeah. Android and iOS, yeah. in, independently. Is that because of your slick video editing skills? Actually, we have a good uh, brand marketing designer. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, more than everything else, I think the app's really good, fast. Yeah. We spend a lot of time on it. Yeah. In fact, our first our first rollout of the app was not that great. It was slow. It used to crash. Users complained, and we listened to that and like recruited a good mobile team, much faster and more reliable. Any technical decisions that drove that? Like, is it React Native? That's slow. Or no, it's it's, it's all native. There's no we're not like on Super one common native. React stack. And the reason to do that is that that's the only way to make the apps feel fast. Yeah. Right. And I believe ChatGPT also does this. Like, yeah. They don't use React Native. Uh, and then the other accomplishment is PPLX Online, which you have, which you're showing on yeah. screen here. Yeah. What are the headline people th things that people should know if they haven't heard of PPLX Online? Well, it's like the only LLM API that has no knowledge cut off. Yeah. So if you're a developer and you just want to prototype products that need information from the web or like has no knowledge cut off, this is the only way to do that. And super fast, pretty accurate. You have two versions, a 7B and a 70B. So 7B is super fast. 7B is like a little slower, but also like better quality. And we plan to bring it up in the context of the Mixtro MOE as well. Yeah. That's been recently so released. Been, yeah, I think you've been pretty transparent that they are fine-tuned a lot. That's right. We, we're not in the business of pre-training. Yeah. But like, what do you fine-tune for between uh, Llama 2 and what do you have? Yeah, we fine-tune for like what, summarization, the ability to take a bunch of sources and accurately give you a nice summary. And you are, I think, the only provider right now with online access or whatever. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but also, like, a Grok has yeah. access to Twitter. Yeah. Uh, which you don't have, and they don't have. They will release an API at some point. If they release, sure. like, we'll I'm be sure happy I trust to. Them. I mean, if they release, they'll, <laughs> we'll be happy to use it, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Our goal is to just give accurate answers on the web. Yeah. And Twitter is just one part of the web. Their vision is like Twitter is everything app. We believe like that's the information out there that exists outside of Twitter that's also super valuable. In fact, like you can even make an argument that information outside Twitter may even be a lot more valuable than information within Twitter because. Most of the links that get shared on Twitter are, are all from outside anyway. Yes. So it's only like what do you miss out on is like a specific person's opinion. And usually like journalists pick on that and like write web articles. So it's all going to diffuse, right? Good yeah. ideas usually diffuse the rest of the web. So we're not really missing out much. It's a, it's a different source of data. Yeah, it's a different yeah. source of data. Yeah, and like, so. Also, it's all about like what, what do you want? Are you, are you, is yeah. your source a citation like already highly curated human artifact or is it like some tweet? These are all like questions worth asking. One thing that you do show off, so I was watching you demo just now, you have sentence by sentence citations. That's right, yeah. That's a design choice. Yeah. Because realistically, your source articles actually overlap. That's right. With the full paragraph. That's so right. why did you choose to impose sentence yeah. by sentence? That's how we write papers. I'm, I'm an academic. Every sentence you write in a paper needs to have a corresponding citation. As, as a user, it can be confusing. Like, when I click that link, yeah. maybe it's like the third paragraph in a like... That's right. We can do better and like yeah. exactly navigating you to the right part of the link. But we're looking into all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. I mean, I, I do see you as like a search engine first with a very good language model team. That's right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Answer engine. I would call it answer engine. Answer engine. Yeah. You are doing a really good job of that. Um, I also noticed in your PPLX blog post that you also talked about the fresh LLM paper. 
That's right. Maybe could you introduce that and like, did you talk to the authors? Uh, are they here in Europe? Like, what? Any? I, I did not talk to the authors. <laughs> like, you know, it's not like we took a lot of inspiration from it. Okay. But it it made sense to like you know attribute the citation to them and yeah, to intellectual yeah, yeah. backgrounds. Yeah. What do you look for at Europe, say a conference like this? Oh, we uh, we we're here for recruiting good, strong researchers to yeah. join our our team, especially if they're more focused on like shipping models to a search product used by millions of people. Awesome. We'll, we'll talk about your sort of hiring call to action in a bit. I'm also interested in like labs, like Perplexity Labs. Yeah. Perple it seems like a place for you guys to experiment with serving models. That's right. Yeah. We like everybody thinks like you know you you start as a wrapper and then one magic day. You just switch over from uh, 3.5 or to like, you know, like your own model. That's not how it works. So in practice, your GPUs crash or like your nodes are not working or like Kubernetes doesn't work as expected and like requests are like uh, not having the throughput required. You you optimize for latency, but then you are like worse on throughput, so you're not able to handle spike requests. So all these things can happen, right? So you only know about these if you start small and like serve a playground where people come and test your own infrastructure and see how it holds up and then take the lessons from there and use it to serve it on production, right? Yeah. So labs is sort of our playground for testing open source models and our in-house models that have been fine-tuned for factual accuracy and helpfulness. And it's like a nice way to for people to test open source models if they're like curious about it, especially if they think about it as alternatives to ChatGPT. And then it's also a nice way for us to like battle test our infrastructure. Same thing goes to the API. Like it's, it's not like I believe these APIs are gonna take over GPT 3.5 APIs or something. But it's a nice way for developers who want an alternative to like explore, especially those who want to use faster, smaller models, like the seven B models. And and it's also a good way for us to know like how we can handle like search requests and things like that. Yeah, I mean, so like I want to push back on this. Like your, you said, your playground is a way to battle test. Yeah. But I think you you probably get orders of magnitude more traffic. That's right. On your main app, yeah. Than your side app. Look, we can't just directly ship to the main app, right? And you can never simulate real. It's like a staging environment. Yeah, it's like a staging environment. Yes, yes, yes. But not just that. It's not just meant to be a staging for. I don't want to like downplay the importance of labs. Labs is sort of one of the fewest places on the internet today for you to go and explore and compare different open source models. And it also tells the user how fast our inferences. We give you all the metrics like. Tokens per tokens second, the time to first token. It's also a very transparent way to communicate the speed of our infrastructure, which helps us also like recruit good talent for infrastructure. Yeah, but you're pretty. I think you're pretty opinionated that you are an app company first. Yeah, we are not an, an infra company. That's right. You just happen to have. We're not. We're not competing with Together AI or Fireworks. Fireworks or like OctoML. Yeah. You know, there are like too many of them actually, honestly. <laughs> and uh, what do you think they need to do to win as an objective? I think they need to raise insane amount of capital. And subsidize the cost so much <laughs> and capture the market, or else it's basically going to be impossible because you're all offering the same thing more or less. And Nvidia is basically commoditizing it, right? Like with uh, TRT LLM and like Megatron and things like that. So most people's stacks are going to get standardized. So then why am I paying you? I'm paying you for the GPUs then. Right. But that's a game you can only pay it. Uh, like it's an economy of scale thing. Which you're also buying your own GPUs and running right. your own stack. That's right. But we care about buying GPUs to serve our own product more yeah. than helping other people serve their products. Yeah. yeah. What have you learned being like a, I don't know, I feel like you're both an infra CEO and an app application sort of product CEO. Yeah. How do you balance that? Yeah, it's difficult, but you know, like you, one thing exists in service of the other, right? Yeah. Infrastructure exists in service of the product. You always have to remember that. 
for some people, product exists in service of the infrastructure. Uh, that's not how we are. What does Perplexity become a year, two years from now? Hopefully, like a lot more people start using it as a Google replacement. I see. They're, you're they're, already. Uh, I read some stats somewhere. You're 10% on Bing traffic. I don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> some someone was measuring like a third-party, like similar yeah, yeah. type of thing. Yeah, maybe maybe for actually for Bing Chat, we might be even even further ahead. Okay. Like it's just perplexity versus Bing Chat, not yeah. Bing.com, which is crazy given that they have so much distribution, right? Oh yeah. And marketing power. But you are more AI but, native than they are. That's right. In a sense. That's right. You are a different search index. Like you, you are, you are, you have your own crawlers. Yeah, we have our own crawlers and indexes. Yeah. So like, if I don't want Bing, then I use your your stuff, and maybe your you turn. That's up right. Stuff. Yeah. That's right. That's cool. Okay, hiring. What are you looking to hire? What people? What should people demonstrate when joining you? I think you have a very strong perspective on the kind of culture that you're building. Yeah. I mean, we work pretty hard, and like, we want to get stuff done fast. Uh, so if you enjoy like fast shipping cycles and. Uh, Can you give uh, illustrations? Like. What do you mean by that? You know, every every two weeks, like we have some announcements we make. So we work on very clear, precise projects that have like clear deliverables, and we kind of constantly want to keep improving the product. So, as a machine learning research engineer, if you're excited about like training models and shipping them to production for such a useful use case like consumer search, and 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 want to do it at the same velocity as like as, as us like a startup rather than a big company that has to wait for several months to get something into production that's a unique spot like to be in right and you also want to be part of a growing exponential rather than something that's trying to defend its territory right like def defend its territory yeah like google google's defending I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so they attack yeah so you want to be in an attacking have, you, have you heard like what does google say about you like are they interested I, in buying I, you i think they're they, like, i think they're being pretty appreciative and respectful of the product right yeah and, but like so, SGE is not great, yeah. For some reason, yeah. I I it's not. By the way, I, I I don't think Google people are not talented. Like they're incredibly probably the more talented than we are. I think it's just that. <laughs> I think it's just that their incentives are not clear, and they might have to cannibalize their own business model to like. Uh, this is the classic innovators dilemma, right? Yeah, like exactly. They yeah. they have a cash cow and that's they right. to preserve yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, you will you don't have ads, but you're you're serving. That's subscriptions. Right. Yeah. And that's the main business model for now. As of today, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's it. Well, thank you very much. Cool. All the people that we talked to so far and some of the best founders I know, whether or not they're in AI, are fierce nerds. And Aravind definitely reminds me of the fierce nerds concept. Um, but I don't think I'm the best person to tell that story. Maybe I'll tag in Sean Puri. Yeah. Have you ever read that Paul Graham blog post called Fierce Nerds? No. What is it? It's an amazing post. I'm going to read you a couple pieces of it, but it's one of those like Paul Graham, I think is somebody said this earlier. They go, what's that guy? Andrew Tate. They said some tweet that was really funny was Paul Graham was my Andrew Tate like yeah. growing up, which Same. is like <laughs> so funny. So it's such a funny, it's such a deep cut joke. But if you get it, you're like, it just hits the spot. All right. So he wrote this post and he goes, most people think of nerds as quiet, you know, sort of like diffident people, right? Just sort of like, you know, passive. And in most social situations, they are, they're, they're quiet and, you know, they're not the star quarterback in the middle of the gym, right? They're kind of a fish out of water and a bunch of different things. He goes, but this is an illusion because when on, that only happens when non-nerds observe them because they're observing them in non-nerdy situations. So you see a nerd at prom, you just see them as a quiet sort of passive nerd. There's no alpha in them. But in fact, some nerds are quite fierce. Fierce nerds are a small but interesting group. They are extremely competitive, more competitive, I would say, than competitive non-nerds because the competition is more personal to them. 
partly because they're not emotionally mature <laughs> and they, they distance themselves from it, but also because there's less randomness in the types of competition that they engage in. Therefore, they're justified in making it more personal. I'll cut it off there. That's a clip from the My First Million podcast. And that's a story about how Dharmesh Shah, the HubSpot CTO, is a first nerd. And I really like that concept because, one, it helps to validate that nerds can also win and why nerds can sometimes win more than regular people. And obviously, for more, you can read that Paul Graham essay. But I think Arvin is a fierce nerd and I think Perplexity is a fierce nerd company. Um, they do have competition, though. It's not like Perplexity is the only company going after Google, not the only company going after search. One of my favorite parts in, in compiling these ensemble episodes is juxtaposing two competitors next to each other or people who disagree or have different worldviews. Like you just heard Perplexity, we just heard Arvind dunk on all the infrastructure companies, including Fireworks, which we just had on. Now, I'm not the right person to tell you who's right and who's wrong, but I know for a fact that they cannot all be right. And that's what's fascinating. That's what makes the market. So next in full disclosure is a personal friend of mine. It's Will Brick from Metaphor Systems. Metaphor launched end of 2022 with an AI search engine narrative as well, but their approach is more of a pre-trained LLM research engine as opposed to Aravind's answer engine. They're all very minor differences in the end. At the end of the day, people want to punch in a query and get results. And Metaphor's approach is different. They are going after the infrastructure play rather than the application plus infrastructure play. And it's just nice to contrast them together. And I'll leave the conclusions to you. What is Metaphor? Metaphor is a search engine of the internet, but it's better than Google at handling complex queries. Okay, why is that? Why is that? Because we train uh, an algorithm from scratch, a search algorithm from scratch to handle complex queries, basically. <laughs> it's a totally yeah. different algorithm, yeah. Why are you at Neurips? I'm at Neurips because we want to learn about all the cool things people are working on and also because we want to hire some yeah. crazy good researchers to help you know build the future of search. Metaphor has a search engine. That's what you launched this, uh, last year. And then you also released an API. Uh, and I've actually been using the API. Like it's, it's actually really good for augmenting LLMs with search. I don't know how much to which you want to lean being an app versus an infrastructure company. Yeah, so we're we're leaning towards search infrastructure. So we really yeah. see ourselves as like, we want people to build applications on top of us. Yeah. We see the future as like everyone will use LLMs as the interface to everything and we want to be powering the search that underlies that. Yeah. I think we want people to build really cool UIs on top of our search, but the hard part and the thing that we're focusing on is really good search results. Yeah. Can you give examples? Like, uh, do you have some like really cool examples of, like tweets and books and PDFs and stuff? People really get excited about like researchers working on something similar to them in the Bay Area or something like that. People yeah. have actually met. Oh yeah, yeah. Competitive Intel research yeah, as well. Yeah. People have met people in real life based on searches because the results <laughs> are so high quality. And they're not, you know, SEO spammed in any way. It's just like exactly what you're asking for that, you know, it's cool to see that like digital information to real world interaction uh, thing happen. I actually also interviewed Arvin from Perplexity, who I feel like is also in that sort of search domain, but he has, he's, he's less focused on search infrastructure. He's more focused on just being a search engine. I don't know if you've, you like compared yourself uh, to Perplexity in that way. Yeah, I know. We get asked this a lot. I mean, Perplexity is doing a great job at combining LLMs, you know, with search results. And that makes, you know, that it, that does make for a better search engine. That is the future of the, the user interaction. Yeah. But we're just like more focused on the search results themselves and really trying to handle the queries that, you know, Google, Bing are not good at. Yeah. And it, so, so, I mean, we, we want people to build LLM style interactions on top of our thing as well. Wait, so you say Google, Bing are not good at. Do you think that people will use you in complement to Google and Bing? 
or do you just completely replace that? At least in the beginning, yeah. like we're, we're going to be used in places where Google and Bing don't work well. So, I mean, if, if your application wants to know the weather or wants to know like the, that Taylor Swift song, basically if your application knows the right keywords to search with, yeah. then sure, Google and Bing are going to be fine for you. Yeah. But if you want to, you know, make these complex, almost metaphorical queries with natural language, uh, which are really the most powerful ones, then you should be using metaphor. Yeah, yeah. I was actually walking from your, uh, we were walking from your sort of sushi party that you just had, like at a recruiting event. Um, yeah, and I hope the food was good. <laughs> it was pretty good. It's pretty good. I, like, I love, love me a little bit of sushi. <laughs> and I was actually talking to people about your sort of auto prompting feature. Because uh, a lot of people, like, I was, there was someone from Mid Journey there, and they were saying how Dolly 3 also does sort of auto prompting or rewriting of the prompts. Yeah. Is there an art to auto-prompting? How do you feel that? How do you feel about your auto-prompting feature, basically? Yeah, auto-prompt is like we convert, we use ChatGPT basically to convert uh, the queries that are come into the search engine into queries that are formatted, formatted for Metaphor's models. Because Metaphor is trained to predict, predict links given text. So the model really, like the best way to prompt Metaphor is to search in a way where a link naturally follows which can be confusing, so we have this auto-prompt that converts into the right format. Yeah. You can kind of think of metaphor as in the same state as like what GPT-3 was in. I don't know if you guys remember, but, uh, or if you it's remember. It's not instruction tunes, yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know, two years ago, GPT-3 was autocomplete, so you had to like prompt it in order to get the best output from it. It had a lot of power, but it just had this weird user interface. Metaphor is in a similar situation. The problem is when you RLHF, you like, and we've tried this, like it does reduce the power of the model, and like it's just okay to, to keep, because like, Often we're using this auto prompt, like it's okay to keep this model the way it is, requiring this autocomplete yeah. type search. And, and yeah, would you call yourself a search LLM? Like very, very long ago, the original pitch for Metaphor that I heard from you guys was you're an LLM that predicts links instead of instead of tokens. Oh uh, well, an LLM is yeah. I mean, LLM is like uh, like it's modeling like uh, yeah, usually like language, and we're not really we're not exactly generating the links. We're yeah. we're we search yeah, yeah. over they're, an they're index. they're not hallucinated at all, right? Yeah. They're actually from an index. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a search LLM. Okay, it's more like a really a search engine. Search you might even <laughs> think of it as a research engine. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of different ways we're, da we're we're trying to explain. I mean, I think we're like using terms that were developed in, a, in an old era for a new type of thing, so we might have to invent new words. Uh, or wait until they are created. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what else should people know about Metaphor in general? Like, what, what other interesting work are you guys doing? I think just, like, the vision is super exciting, and I think people don't realize how exciting the vision is. Uh, basically, the vision is to solve search. What does that mean? It means no matter how complex the query, we sh Metaphor should be able to handle it. So we're talking, like, you know, like, AI researchers similar to you who are in the Bay Area, who've worked on Rust before, who, you know, went to so-and-so college, who would be a great candidate for, for this startup. Whatever it is, like we should be able to handle it, and like and language models are powerful enough to understand language, you know, at the level of a human. So you should theoretically be able to make a system like this. It's just a matter of how fast can it be. Yeah. And we want to make these things like do all those complex queries really fast. And imagine, imagine if you could do this. Imagine if this was was like possible. And then you combine that with like, you know, GPT-4, GPT-5, and that's how we want our customers to combine us with, you know, combine us with GPT-4, GPT-5. Suddenly now you have the ability to literally answer any information query, no matter how complex. That, like the entire world's knowledge is at your fingertips. That's like insane. <laughs> like <laughs> like we, we basically become all knowing. Yeah. You know, omnipotent. Sorry. Yeah, th that's omniscient. <laughs> omniscient and then omnipotent. Uh, omniscient because knowledge is right, power, right? right? Sorry, I skipped a step. No, no, no yeah, I can, I, can do, I can do that sort of uh, QED proof of yeah, uh, yeah. why omniscient equals omnipotent. Right. I am very excited about uh, you guys. Uh, you know, I, I, I've seen you grow literally from your living room and, <laughs> yeah, right. um, and uh, it's definitely not over. Uh, what's, it, what's it like having a um, Mimi celebrity CTO who keeps tweeting viral shit? No, I mean, I love it. Like Jeff, 
Jeff literally just goes. Jeff has figured out Twitter. He just knows how to go viral because he has really good takes. And we we often throw up a party in response to his viral tweets. So you want to talk about the yeah, yeah. Andrew Huberman party? Yeah, okay, so he had a tweet that was like Andrew Huberman has single-handedly like destroyed the SF social scene because like everyone whatever is like sober at parties and goes home early. And so of course we had an anti-Huberman party uh, where we you know everyone stayed late and we had like you know a bunch of beer and like everyone. Well, my my favorite was all over the the apartment that we had the party in. You plaster like quotes from Andrew Huberman about oh, yeah. alcohol Jeffrey. <laughs> right. Alcohol will destroy your brain and like all these things. I look, I mean, everything in balance, right? Like, we don't, we should have fun in life, but also, you know, and be safe and everything. But, and then the, and he had another uh, tweet about, uh, you know, how, how he was going to go on a date, but the girl ghosted him, and that allowed him to focus on coding that night. So, of course, we had to have, like, a ghosted NSF party where everyone came to code together. Because you're already going to be ghosted on Friday night. You might as well code together while you're at it. So Yeah, yeah I, I love that part of the social scene. I think metaphor is also really driving that somehow. Yeah. So, congrats for all you do, and uh, it's just nice to check in with you. I've personally been enjoying the metaphor approach to LLM search APIs. I've often said this in context of the capabilities of GPTs. So if you think about it, what are the capabilities of ChatGPT as it is today, as well as GPTs as announced on Dev Day, right? There's the LLM base layer, but then you tack on three core capabilities on top of it, right? One is retrieval mounted generation where you upload files and then you do rag on it. And second is a code interpreter where you do uh, generate code in a sandbox and then you run code and you correct code and finally you execute it. And third is you have a search feature. And so we have a bunch of companies competing for the RAG functionality. You can check our episodes mutually with Harrison of Langchain and Jerry of Llama Index this year. There's a bunch of companies competing for the code interpreter capability. There's obviously Replit, but then abstractly there's also Deno and Valtown and anyone who runs code is in that game basically. But what is surprisingly uncontested is open web search. And so far, I think it's perplexity and metaphor that are leading the pack in their different approaches. One, the PPLX API is an integrated LLM plus search API. And then two is metaphor, which is search only. And it, you kind of bring your own LLMs. For our next guest, we're actually going to go over to our last return guest, which is one of our most recent hits, which is Jeremy Howard, previously of FastAI, but now of Answer AI. It seems that all people want is answers, and Jeremy doesn't have them, but he has questions. Outside of the decibel event. I almost grabbed one. Recording. I realized I had to be the interviewer, and I was like, I should probably should have And I had to pick a wine, and Sean told me, pick the most expensive one. Yeah, it's on decibel Because decibel is paying for it. So the one I'm having is from a $160 bottle, and it's really good. And I did the same. And I'm not having any wine. <laughs> yes. Uh, could we go around and identify voices for people listening? Uh, maybe Tanish, you want to start? Sure. Uh, my name is Tanish Abraham. I uh, am the CEO of MedArc, which is a medical AI research organization. I also work as a research director at Stability AI, and I've been collaborating with Jeremy Howard for more than a year, like a few years, a couple of years maybe. And he's also the president of MedArc, and he's been heavily involved uh, in my venture as well. So, And you yeah. have a podcast together, which I really enjoyed. Oh, yeah, yes. Uh, Jeremy had me on his podcast, which was... Uh, Your first and only episode? Or what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that like maintaining a podcast is hard. Who knows? Nah, it's easy. Just just have, just have shove microphones in front of people's faces. Yeah. Like, uh, so I'm Jeremy Howard. This is my voice. And uh, as of today, I'm Jeremy Howard of Answer.ai. I guess. Yes. And repeat guests on Linspace. Mm -hmm. uh, your, your last episode did really well in terms of the number of views. So yeah, you guys yeah, are you, good interviewers. Well, also, you drop a lot of uh, spice, which is what we like as podcasters. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, we also have Jess Liao on for the first time. Hey. Yes, hello. I'm Jess Liao, and I'm a partner at Decibel. Excited yes. to be here. Excited oh, to be providing the wine st also. Standing in for Alessio. Oh, so good. Uh, Alessio dished us tonight, right? So, so you're you're the better replacement. <laughs> yeah, it's it's good because um in a in a previous conference Alessio was wearing my badge and uh, and and replacing me, so now I can be Alessio for today. Well, you just worked really a, a well. shorter version of Alessio, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um. So so today we uh today was the answer AI announcement. Maybe you want to cover that. Just like what should people know about it? What should people know about it? Oh, I don't know, man. You, you um, went from fast AI to the dark side now. No, to, it's to, not to the at for profit. all. It is the light side. It is actually it is the light side. Fast AI, look, I spent the last week in San Francisco, and the amount of love I received for, for Fast AI was overwhelming. I couldn't believe how many people told me it changed their life, you know, um, which, is, which is just amazing. But I, I have to say, it's actually it's time to re, be re, rejuvenated. You know, the mission is the same, bring AI to as many people as possible, um, but now we can't do it on the back of my bank account. I've been paying for everything on my wife, you know. We can't afford but it you've anymore. You've had donations and stuff. No, but you, you no, were very no, nothing. Actually, sorry, you were very steadfastly, steadfastly against donations. I remember this. Yeah, no yes. donations, no revenue of any kind, totally independent. Um, but now, you know, uh, I think we can do a better job by having a bank account with money in it. So <laughs> thank you, Jess, for sending us money. Jess, We're happy it, to provide. What is it like when someone like Jeremy comes and like goes, you know, we need we need a bank account? You know, there, there, there are some people that you go through a pitch and then there's some people that you email and you start prepping the wire. And I would say that Jeremy fell into the ladder. Well, no, I didn't even ask for this money. I was just I was just going to have a chat with Alessio to get some advice. Yeah. yeah. And then Jess turned up and Jess's uh, other partner, John, turned up and I was like, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, oh, we'd like to give you money. So... I was like, oh, okay. So that was good. They have good taste, right? <laughs> yeah. I've talked to you a bit, uh, especially at the modular conference, which I'm wearing the, the badge nice of. Nice hoodie, the, the yeah. Sweater. Yeah, the hoodie is really nice. So, so you're interested in fine-tuning. Mm. You're interested in uh, fundamental research. Mm. What, like, could you list out the main areas of interest, maybe? And I mean, basically, the interest is in making AI as useful and valuable as possible. Yeah. That's how we make it like as accessible, you know, as accessible as possible, as widely used as possible. Help as many possible as people as we can with this technology, right? So, how do we do that? Well, it needs to be cheaper, it needs to be faster, it needs to be easier to use, and it needs to be like more integrated into people's like day-to-day -day lives, into the stuff that they do. This is like hard, you know. And so, in the end, I guess I was inspired by. Thomas Edison's invention factory in the late 19th century, where they had the same situation. They were like, oh, look, electricity has been invented. Okay, what do we do with this? Uh, it's a source of power. Um, I don't know. And they're like, oh, let's create the record player and the light bulb and the refrigerator. And, you know, it's like recognizing that now you have electricity, you can make all these things. That's hard. It requires really smart researchers who deeply understand the underlying technology recognize like, oh, there are some gaps here, but they could be filled if we like use this kind of different kind of filament or, or whatever. And so you actually need like deep technical experts who also have the like curiosity and playfulness and spontaneity to like think like, oh, what if the world had this new thing in it? I wonder if we could 
put that thing in the world now that we have AI. Yeah, you were very complimentary of like the open source. So, so we last met at the open source meetup as well. <laughs> we met so many times, um, <laughs> and you you're very complimentary of like their approach towards just trying things like model stacking, uh -huh. for example. Yeah. Um, is that the kind of people that you're looking to collaborate with? I think partly. Um, yeah. You know, I'm deeply involved in the open source community, and I want to continue to do that. You know, they all the best. Um, kind of models outside of your kind of open AI and stuff are all created by the open source community at the moment through just trying crazy things. Um, but it'll be a mix, you know. I also want to work really closely with the, the best academics in the world, you know. And I also want to collaborate with the people in parts of the world we've never even heard of who never get a chance because never, nobody gave them a chance yeah. and you know so one of the things we're going to be doing a lot of is like recruiting in really weird ways you know to find those people who are underappreciated and, and would it be like a challenge like a kaggle type yeah challenge? like kaggly kind of things and you know you know physically find ways you know or through like open source bounties and stuff like that like basically give people an opportunity to show that they can do amazing shit that nobody else can do. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how old they are or where they live or what the color of their skin is or whatever. You know. Yeah, I think what the FASTA community has shown is that there are a lot of people who don't have a traditional background that are really talented people. And it's, I think, uh, yeah, it's great that that was there for, that the FASTA community was there and that uh, Jeremy continues to highlight that those, those Actually, talents yeah, as well. So let me give props to Tanish because an example, right? So Tanish is the CEO of a, of a research lab of which I'm the president, Medak. And he, how old are you, Tanishk? I'm 20 years old, which is why I'm not drinking the wine. You know, so like Tanishk's a great example of somebody that most people wouldn't hire as a CEO, but why the hell not? Like he finished, he finished high school 10 years ago. He finished high school at 10. You know, he had his first, first degree at what, 14? Like he's somebody who's I mean, you know, that, that's somewhat, time. that's somewhat like he, he went after the traditional accreditation, uh, the, the pieces of paper that you would pursue to show yourself as qualified. So in a way, he's, he's part of that uh, status quo. In a way, but, you know, <laughs> un you know, unfortunately, people are ageist. Yes, they and are. So, um, and I also note that I never actually did a compu computer science degree or anything like this. My start with... AI was actually through the fast AI course. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, and so it's been a long journey since then. Yeah. What What would you ask him about answer? Because I, I already know a lot of what's going on at the company. Well, so. What is he not saying? Is he too humble to say? I think he's what he's not saying. He's already you know has a great team of, of researchers that you know we there are already two researchers that are at Answer AI that are amazing researchers that I've had the chance to also interact with over the past maybe year, a year or so closely and also just more generally. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what Answer does and I'm really excited to continue to collaborate with Jeremy. I think uh, this will be even better for me. Per, like I'm selfishly, I'm very excited because I think it'll be better for me uh, you know, to work a, a, a closely with Jeremy as well. Um, even though you know he's in his own research lab, but I think the, the collaborations that will come out of this will be, will just be amazing. So that's what I'm excited for. 
And Jeremy, last time you were on the podcast, you said that you know one of the most consistent pieces of advice that you always give is that people just need to show up, follow through, do the work. Yeah. Um, that stuff. Obviously, Tanish did. Yeah, that. so Tanish is one of those rare people, right? But like, so. what? Like, I feel like Tanish is more special than that. Like, what? What else did he do really well? Yeah. Is so. Learnable? I mean, God, how old were you when I first came across you? Like fifteen or something, maybe? Yeah. Wait, what? It's been so long. Yeah. Because he only took Fasi a no, year and a half ago. No, no, no. He was oh. a fast AS student back then. Okay. And, you know, he he kind of got on the forum helped answer questions, you know, asked interesting questions of his own. To stick with that for five years, that's tenacity, you know. And the last course we did was the hardest course we've ever had. It was the diffusion course. It was the first ever stable diffusion course. And none of us knew what the hell was going on. And, you know, he was the one who slogged through the math figured out what the hell all those Greek letters were saying and did the first math of stable diffusion video that, as far as I know, that ever existed. Um, you did that with Wasim, right? Along with Wasim. So, you know, he, like, he slogs through difficult shit. And the thing that I noticed now is, like, you know, Tanishka is kind of famous, or was kind of famous as a child prodigy. You know, yes. he was on you child, did a TED talk. He when was you're on child 14. genius. He did a TED talk. I was nine when I did it. <laughs> he was nine. Okay, and like, okay. so I kind of thought like, oh, things are easy for child prodigies. You know, they're so smart that they just, it's easy. And I'm like, oh no, actually, Tanishka's nearly as dumb as me, and so he just works really. Agree. He just I works really that. hard, and he's and he's like he's and I'm like Tanishka, what does this mean? He's like, I don't know, like. Oh, okay. We better figure it out. And so that's been interesting to see that, like, actually, child prodigies have to work really, really hard as well. You know, that's part of what makes them a child prodigy is that they're tenacious and they don't give up even over five years. You know? Does it look that way to you? Is, is that what you? Yeah, I think so. And I think again, part of it. You agree? You're nearly as dumb as me. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> Say it again for think, the pod. I think uh, Jeremy's trying to trick me here. Um, but I think um, the FASI community has been so friendly that it, it, it's been a really pleasant experience to, to, to stay with that community. And I think uh, that has also enabled my tenacity because I enjoy being in that community so much. So that's why I've st stuck around in that community for so long. So without that, uh, without the community that Jeremy has built, there's, I don't think there's any way I would... It supports you. Yeah. yeah. I had the same with Free Cocab. So, you know, I think a lot of it has Amazing. to do with... with a, I'm going to cry. <laughs> I think a lot of it has to do with building good communities, and Jeremy has done a really good job of doing that. And it's actually a lot of hard work to build a good community and to nurture and grow that community. And uh, you know, I've I've been in many communities, and I've kind of observed you know how different communities in the AI field have grown. And FastAI still is like one of the best communities that I've had a chance to be a part of. So you know, again, props to Jeremy for for doing that as well. I'm so embarrassed right now. <laughs> I, I want to give you the perspective. You've been an AI investor for a while. Yeah. And like, how do you like how do you view this community and this moment here? The the one thing I will say to the conversation that we just were just having that I think is awesome is we can move here a little. Yeah. Bit. <laughs> There's so that people keep coming and drinking more wine. It's right great. Next it's a mobile us. studio. Yeah, we're truly yeah, mobile studio, middle of New Orleans. Let's go. Um, one of my favorite heuristics as an investor is distance traveled. Rather than just your, um, rather than just like what 
what do I see today in your resume or whatnot, um, because um, I think if you just go by a certain pedigree or credential or whatnot, you miss a lot of people who have traveled a really big distance, who didn't have advantage of certain opportunities or came from different places or not from the U.S., like you name all the different, um, you know, all the different lists. And I always try to look for those kinds of people because they're the ones that are always pushing the frontier and like really run through walls. And I think this conversation is a good example of that, right? And I mean, no one has a longer distance traveled to Germany. I 100%. Feel like. <laughs> <laughs> well, literally and, and, and in the sense. Literally from Australia, yeah. yes. yes. <laughs> and, and when we were, and I think when we were meeting last week, you were talking about this a little bit around looking for engineers and people at places that it's not necessarily where everyone else would be looking at, but that has yielded some of the best, like deepest relationships you've had, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, companies turn resources into valuable products and services, right? Like, what are the resources that we we suck in? It's like it's people and GPUs, you know. And money. And it's like, and 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 well, we need the money to, pay for to the get those GPUs yeah. and, the, and the and the people, right? And like the the. GPUs are, you know, reasonably like you can replace one with another, no, no worries. But so it's actually the com the competitive advantage, the thing that makes you different, is the people. So this is the most important thing for us to achieve our mission is is to build this team, you know, to build this really special team. And I, you know, I think the way to do that, and the way I've always built teams, is to say is to look at people and say like, okay where is this person now and what would it have taken them to get there? You know, like, so if, if somebody's like, you know, was kicked out of high school, you know, because they were dyslexic or because somebody was like, grew up in the mountains of Bangladesh and didn't have a PC until they were 16 or, you know, somebody fought against, you know, uh, you know, a, a woman who grew up in an environment which he had to fight against, like, institutionalized sexism or whatever it's like these are the people to me I just kind of go like okay this person's gone from like negative 43 up to 99 <laughs> yes overcome a lot that's a kick-ass amazing person where somebody who's gone from like 98 to 99 is like okay it's still cool but they're probably not the people who are going to like change the world yeah and so we want to be a small team where like literally every person in it is somebody who can change the world and the nice thing is when you're in a small team like that it's just really enjoyable because everybody's like just really great to be around you know really inspiring and so yeah that's why we're kind of looking for these uh, extremely special individuals yeah Cool. So that's a hiring call uh, explicitly. You know, if, if anyone's listening who fits that profile and uh, really wants to work with you, uh, they should reach out, right? Yes, on, on, uh, And now we have a website to send people to. <laughs> um, so I, I was going to wrap it up with um, uh, just overall New Europe's tips, right? Like, what is it like to be at New Europe's uh, this year if you've been here before? Uh, and also, like, what's your best tip for doing New Europe's right? We can, anyone can take it. I guess I'll start. Uh, this is my second Europe, so I, maybe I don't have a lot of experience with it. But I mean, I've been enjoying it a lot so far. Um, for me, I think it's about networking with people, and that's the best part of Europe. Because at the end of the day, uh, AI moves so fast that half of these papers are already kind of outdated. <laughs> like, like you know, 
we've already seen they like were written months ago, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. In order to get here, too, they had to yeah. be reviewed. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, we're already seeing the, the 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 second version or the third version of a lot of these models already, and you know, so I mean, it's for me. So the, archive is all you need. <laughs> archive is all you need. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so for me, the value comes out of talking with people and meeting with people and networking, and that's why you know we're coming to events like these that to network with and, and you know make these connections. And you know, I, I'm, I, always, I actually meet a lot of like collaborators and other researchers at all. These and just to be clear, when you say networking, like it's not like networking in that sense of like getting ahead. It's a kind of a really nerdy kind of networking. So like earlier, Tanishka and I were at another reception where it's like. Oh, there's Albert Goo. He's the guy that, like, two days ago released the Mamba paper. And we go up to him and say, like, oh, you know, let's... We had a conversation about state-space models and why he's using that and what he thinks the opportunities and limitations are and is there still room for attention? And, like, so when we say networking, you know, we mean, like, geeking out on deep conversations about people's academic areas of interest. Yeah. Yeah. I I always follow up the question of, like, okay, like, what's your name, where you work, and then what are your interests? And then we kind of go from there. Yeah, just, like, what paper did you right last or you know I will say one thing so even though the posters there there are a bunch that truly you go by and even the people presenting are like yeah this is kind of out of date the one the one hack that's really fun is a lot of those people are also already working on the next thing and they can give you sort of an early preview of something that actually is not an archive yet and so that I actually have always my, my favorite parts of the conference are actually just walking around the poster session, shaking hands with people who are presenting and learning about what they're most excited about, what they're working on, what are some of the new things. So I find that really fun. Um, and also, in my case, since I'm a VC, uh, my best tip is uh, throw an event with a lot of good wine and <laughs> let, the, wine let the people come. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Uh, Jeremy, you have any tips? I mean, like Tanishka, this is only my second Europe's. Um, um, but my, 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 I've been to quite a few conferences in general, and my tip, number one tip for all conferences, is don't go to any sessions. Yeah, um, stay outside and talk. Like, whatever they're saying, very, very slowly, and then they're probably not an expert at verbal communication either, <laughs> you can probably get the better version by just reading the damn paper that they're reading out to you. So don't bother with that. So like, yeah, hang outside, you know, in the hallway, um, look on the app to see who else is around, and yeah. reach out to them, and like, try and like, find a group of six or so interesting people to go and like check out the you know local Louisiana Louisiana sausage special outlet with whatever yeah that's reception hopping this is our fourth reception tonight oh my god fourth and best right Jeremy oh fourth and best this is why we left this is why we came to this one last so we can hang out here let's go until the wine's finished so so a lot of people hate on the official New Europe's conference app Hoover uh, but I kind of like it because of one thing. People can organize their own meetups and list it here. And it's awesome. It. Exactly. It's awesome. It's actually really good. Yeah, so I'm Brazilian and there's a Brazil like little chat. And it's so fun. Everyone's talking in Portuguese, talking all the time. They're sharing all the things that... And these are people talking about actually like interesting concepts in Portuguese. Um, so it, it's it's actually really fun. I, I love the app. And I didn't even know you were Brazilian. So I, I am. Yeah, yes. Liao with a little squiggly. Liao, squiggly. yeah. My, my, my accent kind of like trips people. And it also trips people when I say something incorrectly and you can't really tell, but I'm like really Brazilian. Yeah. Well, we should we should do a steakhouse uh, next time. Yeah. Oh, yes, one please. Of those, yeah, yes, that's, please. That's one of those dinners. Done. done Churrascarias, right? Yeah, churrascaria. <laughs> exactly. Uh, my, my favorite was uh, there was a meetup for people who are interested in sushi. That, that was that was the meetup. I love it, yeah. There's like nothing machine learning about it. So at ICML, it was really fun. There was one meetup that I went to that was just like swimming in the morning because it was in Hawaii. It was actually kind of awesome. And then people were like actually discussing like super legit topics. 
in the ocean. I'm actually kind of sad I missed out on ICML, yeah. but like ICML it's, it felt cool. indulgent to go to Hawaii for that. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I just want to bring it to a close. Uh, the, the last thing I was going to say is, uh, Jeremy, I don't know if you know, I picked uh, your meme as the best meme of November 2023. It was Laundry Buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's Jeremy. up with Laundry Buddy? Why do you hate it so much? What, what did it do no. to you? <laughs> no. It did nothing to so, me. So I, you, for people who are out of the loop, I what, what, what I did you do? I couldn't have walked it back more. <laughs> Jeremy did walk you, it back you, on you Twitter. You really gonna make me revisit my shame? <laughs> I just think okay, it's a fun story. Okay, just for your show. So, some people don't know. Some people don't know. I made a bold claim that Laundry Buddy was not the peak of OpenAI's path to societally beneficial artificial general intelligence. I was wrong. <laughs> it is, in fact, very much on that path. It is well loved. <laughs> To be able to know that the world's best artificial intelligence can help you figure out how to sort out your whites and your colors, whether to use powder or pods, and what to do, you know, if you get a stain and you don't have laundry nearby. It's, 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 it's special. It's important, and it's it's a part of my life that I will is, never want yeah. to be without. <laughs> I, I, I love that the so the ChatGPT now has an official Twitter account, and they even got in on the Laundry Buddy meme, which is amazing to me. I, I actually I, spent a couple of hours this morning hanging out with Boris Power from OpenAI, yeah. who you know was in there batting for Laundry Buddy from the start. <laughs> Wait, there's, the, a, there's an anti and pro Laundry Buddy? No, I mean, he was just a particularly strong enthusiast. Right? <laughs> he had the grace to not even bring it up, unlike, unlike you. <laughs> I, had to, I had to. It was so funny. I, I cracked up so much. It was great. Uh, well, thanks for chatting, uh, and I'll Thank return you, you back to your evenings. May, may, may your clothes be well laundered. Thanks for having us. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks. That was Jeremy Howard, together with Tanishk Abraham and Jess Liao. Tanishk and Jeremy recorded a podcast separately, so if you want to learn more about Tanishk, he's done long-form interviews in more detail than I can cover because it's a lot of biomedical stuff, and that's one of the areas that we are not very knowledgeable on. And for Jess Liao, she was an investor in Mosaic, is one of the newest partners at Decibel, and led the round in Answer AI. Next, we're going to go to some people on the show floor of the NeurIPS Expo. They're not people I had prior relationships with, but they're still doing interesting work nonetheless. And the first is we're going to check in with Cerebrus, which is not only producing giant, massive GPUs, but also publishing interesting research. So here's my conversation with Joe Hesnes, Principal Research Scientist at Cerebrus Systems. That started working about a year ago. Um, we started building out multi-box systems so that we could do cluster level training, so larger scale models. And so this last year, we've just been um, like showing off what, what it's capable of. So early this year, we started with uh, our Cerebrus GPT models uh, that showed yes. compute optimal scaling for uh, so chinchilla style scaling, but it's open source. All those models we released open source. Based on that work, we, we got attention of a few different groups. One of them was the Open Tensor Foundation, and they came to us and said, hey, we want a great uh, three billion parameter model that does, uh, so it's something that's easy to deploy, like in a laptop or something, and we wanted to do very general language capabilities, long sequence length. And so we, we trained the BTLM language model for that. Um, concurrently with that, we also had an engagement that started up with 
uh, Group 42 in the United Arab Emirates. So that's uh, this poster, Core 42. They have uh, they had interest to train large Arabic language models. So uh, the first demos that we did for them were just Arabic models, but then they said, let's do English multilingual yeah. Arabic and English. So we've been training the JACE 13 billion and 30 billion parameter models uh, this year. Uh, we've released both of those publicly. The first version of the 30 billion just came out. Um, and the, the quality of that model is in Arabic is better than uh, any other public models currently. And then in English, uh, it's competitive with models like Falcon 40B. So um, we're on a good track there. Uh, more releases to come through Core 42. We're excited to have that be open source and, and to contribute to the community there. Yeah. And then yeah, anecdotally, yeah. I mean, since we're already we're already chatting, so sure. might as well keep going. But the UAE also notably has the Falcon or TI um, yes. Institute. Yep. Are they related? Are they are they competing with each other? What's going on? Initially, there was a little bit of competition. They're they're funded by different uh, different Group. people, yeah. different groups. So, um, but there is a, a countrywide effort going on in the United Arab Emirates to uh, to consolidate a lot of their AI efforts. Yeah. Uh, and so that's why we're seeing um, very impressive and, and um, good pushes towards let's make it open, let's collaborate some more. Uh, and so there might be opportunities in the future for us to coordinate directly with TII. Um, and we have looked at things like their their data sets, like Refined Web. So there yeah. has been some exchange. Yeah, with so the far. macro data refinement process that I don't know if you know, yes. it was a reference to an Apple TV show. Mm, uh, okay. <laughs> Severance, anyway. Interesting. It's my fun, my fun fact. A uh, little bit editor's note, the TII Institute people were actually there at NeurIPS presenting a poster on Refined Web, the dataset that they did for Falcon 180B and 40B. So I asked them about the name. Uh, my last question is about the name. Is it from Apple? Is it, the, is it from Severance? Yes. Uh, <laughs> so what's the story? What's the... No, it's just like, uh, basically, but in the end, we had someone look at the data uh, every now and then, like, go through the thing. <laughs> and that's like looking at the scary numbers. So, yes. you know, this was the macro. You know, nobody comments about this. I know. It's, I, I was like, wait, I saw this in Severance. Yeah, I know. <laughs> right? Like, I was like, this is a good joke. Because it's exactly what you do when you do filtering. Exactly. Yeah. If you haven't seen Severance, it's a great show. It's on Apple TV. Great watch for the holidays. Pretty short. And it's uh, interesting. I guess you can call it AI related now. Um, but it's, it's cool that, uh, well, so one of the things I often get asked about, because we have listeners in a lot of uh, different countries, should every country have their own model? You know, I think this is a really tough question because yeah. um, the, the volume of data in different languages is a it's power Sometimes law, it's zips law distrib distributed. So the number of low resource languages is massive. It's, yeah. We're talking over 100 languages that are low resource. Yeah. You just have too few tokens to do uh, to do a lot with in, in the language modeling context. So it's much harder to deal with those. Now, there uh, we've actually seen a few different techniques at NeurIPS uh, that are targeting those sorts of settings. And they're doing things like train a uh, base language model in English and then do transfer process where you co-train with both languages. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That's In that setting, you want to get the knowledge representation from one language and then try to adapt the yeah. style, grammar, grammar syntax, yeah. I guess, the easier part. Yeah. Um, in Arabic, we're in a sort of medium resource language. There, I think it makes more sense to try to mix two languages if you want to do multilingual, and then it helps you do things like translation. Okay. 
And then uh, higher resource languages. So if you're talking uh, European languages, French, Spanish, English, uh, German, those I think you can do probably um, from scratch in those languages and uh, probably pretty easy to do multilinguality also. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a definitely a very interesting open direction we're uh, we're pushing for. Um, in fact, I'd maybe reference uh, we have a workshop. multilingual workshop yeah. on Friday nice. uh, where we're we've invited a bunch of groups to come and give talks about their experiences with training different language models. Cool. Uh, well, people can check out the authors. I'm sure this is published and findable online. Yes. Um, cool. What what other? So um, we should probably get to intros a little bit. Uh, we, I mean, we're already sure. recording. Uh, so who are you and what do you work on and what, sure. what is your team work uh, on? So my name is Joel Hesness. I'm a principal research scientist at Cerebra Systems and uh, I'm the, the lead of our core machine learning group. Uh, so I've helped us bring up our foundation language models first and helped kind of set some of the direction for expanding outward from there. So uh, we started by expanding out a lot on uh, the language, the common language functionality. And uh, now we're expanding into other places where transformer uh, models can be used. So targeting things like uh, multimodal uh, and other uh, workloads that are similar. Oh, okay. So um, a lot of our effort has been bringing this up and coordinating with the broader Cerebrus organization to do uh, lower these applications down, get them compiled to run at efficiency on our hardware. Uh, so there's been a lot of performance optimization, making sure numerics are correct for for training large models, making sure things train stably, things like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're we're focusing on scaling out right now, uh, getting much larger clusters. Uh, we've got we've sold a couple already, and to G forty two, G forty two, and uh, yeah, exciting things to come there. I think. Exciting things to come. So we're going to cover some of the other uh, posters that you have here, but one thing I, I guess I. People are very unfamiliar with anything but NVIDIA. Mm -hmm. uh, what should people know when working with a Cerebrus chip? Like, sure, yeah, yeah I think maybe, maybe people might be familiar with our, our wafer. Yeah. So Cerebrus uses a full wafer for our processor instead of cutting the wafer apart into pieces. Um, if you cut it apart, you end up packaging it into a bunch of different cards, and then you package those into a box. Then you have box, to network them. Yeah. And then you have to network them all together with a bunch of extra software. That's very complicated for large-scale applications. And so uh, instead of doing that, we leave it together on a single wafer. Got it. That single wafer goes in a single big box. That's the performance is roughly equivalent. Our CS2 box is roughly equivalent to maybe 20 A100 GPUs. And you can program it like running on a single GPU. So it's just much easier to use. Nice. And is um, it? cost-effective as well? I, I assume it is because yes. you're so, saving a whole bunch of overhead. Right. So we aim, so the, the manufacturing process it has a lot lower costs because we don't have to deal with as many yeah. moving parts. Um, the fewer points of failure, reliability is quite good. Yeah. And we try to, uh, we aim to be a per price performance uh, comparable to GPU systems. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. That's the hardware stuff. We're also going to talk about the streaming things in a bit. But uh, yeah, I'd love to, whatever you want to pick next as, as sure, uh, yeah. your, I think one of your work for this year. Just give a, an overview of sure. some of our research directions. So yeah. our, our hardware is, uh, it has native support for un completely unstructured sparsity. 
what that means is we can send in, uh, say, if we're using the weight streaming mode, which I mentioned, the, a weight that comes in, we can do a vector multiply with some activations. Uh, so you can use that in your uh, matrix multiplies on the wafer, but you can do that on a per weight basis. Mm. You what don't need means, to load the whole thing at once. You don't need to load the whole thing to do uh, yeah. matrix multiply. So what that means is we can do unstructured sparsity, just send in the weights that you actually want to use in the matrix multiply, and you can get uh, a sparse matrix multiply. Isn't a decision for, like this is the argument, classic argument against that kind of sparsity is that the decision actually takes longer than just doing the math anyway. <laughs> like the, the branching, the, the sort of Turing complete branching. That's a, that's a yeah, so... Uh, part of the approach that we're using is uh, a weight sparse approach, which means the sparsity is in our in the model itself. And so then while you're training that, you'd prefer those weights to be uh, the same sparsity structure for a while. Okay. So there are techniques that train... Some kind of constraints, uh, some yeah, regularization thing. Right, yeah. So, so uh, the, the early works in this are things like the lottery ticket hypothesis, yep. where you'd find the... Uh, John Frank John Frankel is like uh, <laughs> ten feet from us. Yeah, and uh, there you find the mask uh, by by doing some heavy duty training, and then you rewind and retrain the model from scratch. Yeah. Now that's uh, static sparse, so that you have the same weight sparsity all the way throughout. That yeah. works great on our hardware. We have, however, added a bunch of new functionality that's sort of beta in our recent release that allows you to change the sparsity throughout training, and so that's. Um, that's something that's being used in recent research works like uh, the rigging the lottery ticket uh, hypothesis work, so Riggle, and then uh, another one called Set, um, diff a different approach to deciding how to, uh, to change the sparsity. But those updates happen uh, infrequently enough that it doesn't harm the performance on our hardware. That's cool. Awesome. Um, so this is sparse IFT is, is the... Is the paper that you published? Yes, so uh, our sparse IFT work looks at different ways that you can swap out layers for sparse versions yep. using the same flops that might be able to get you uh, better representation capability. So if you have uh, pressure in your representation that's in your activations, for instance, let's widen the layer and sparsify it to give the model more activations. You can store more in those activations. Uh, those, are, those end up staying dense. So um, our results here show that, that we can get something like a, a 2 to 3x performance improvement at 75% at sparse, or you could flip it around and um, you can get, for the same flops, a better model by right. sometimes 3 to 5%. Right. That's probably, budget-wise, I guess you're choosing between pre-training and inference, just like many people, like right. what you're optimizing for. Yes. That's great. Awesome. Uh, and what else are you leading? So uh, I'm also working on, the, uh, on some of the pre-training efforts that we're doing that look at uh, things like gradient noise to estimate good batch sizing okay. and make sure that we're getting, making efficient use of the compute. So um, there are techniques. So we have a poster, uh, the efficient and approximate per example gradient norms oh paper. Uh, this, this is, yes. So this is at the, uh, we have this published at the WANT workshop with okay. NURPS, uh -huh. and uh, the basic idea is uh, gradient norm calculations are, uh, typically if you wanted to do the uh, gradient norm calculation, you'd want to aggregate all the gradients together and then calculate the norm. Uh -huh. and you do that over your batch. Yeah. So that's, it's 
helpful if you want to measure some training dynamics, but if you want to look at something like critical batch size uh, to understand is how well is my model training in terms of efficiency, you actually want to have sub-batches. You want to understand the grad norms of the sub-batches also. If you use that and then the large batch grad norm, you can calculate noise statistics, like signal to noise maybe. Yep. Um, if you use this technique that was defined by uh, one of my teammates, Gavia, we can uh, we can do an approximation that allows us to take some run some statistics over activations and run some statistics over the the delta gradient values coming back, and then you can take a dot product, uh, an element wise product of those. Now it's much more compute efficient to calculate for each example. This is an approximation of the. Uh, the gradient for that sample. Mm -hmm. And then you can arbitrarily kind of combine those back together to get uh, estimates of uh, gradient noise. Okay. So and, and uh, this this is something where we, we improve the we improve the for uh, compute, GPT. compute yeah. requirements. Uh, we, we use this in in a few different contexts currently, but uh, it's it improves the compute requirement for this from uh, for for high dimensional tensors, from the dimension of the tensor down to linear yeah. uh, linear time computation. Nice. And uh, do you is there like um, uh, I forget what this what is this called? It's kind of like an annealing curve or something where you use this technique at the start to initialize and then and then eventually you you sort of wean yourself off it. So uh, if you, so this is something you do want to track throughout training. Yeah. Uh, especially if you're if you're doing um, like phase training or if you're changing the data distribution or something, it's right. really helpful to have these statistics to decide is my am I using an appropriate batch size that right. I'm getting good generalization with the new data. Uh, it helps you set learning rates and things. So. Um, okay. This is something you want to track throughout training. It's uh, it gives you a, an a estimate of yeah. how big the batch size could be. Yeah, excellent. Very cool. Um, any right. uh, one more? <laughs> I don't know. Sure. Uh, so then, uh, given that we have a, a sparse accelerator, we're also looking at uh, applications where you can <laughs> deploy sparse models. And uh, part of our work is figuring out how to find those sparse models that you use in a deployment setting. And so uh, we have other work that's uh, related to like the sparse GPT work that's uh, been re recently released where we um, we do some pruning after uh, dense pre-training and we do some retraining to to get the capabilities of the model back, back up, yeah. before you would put it in deployment. How much of it can you get back? Actually, I'm not too, totally familiar. This was I mean, work from, from my team members. Um, I know we can do, so for, for large, very large language models that have, uh, have not been trained on a huge number of tokens, you can do easily upwards of 50% sparsity and fully recover the, like the upstream losses from this retraining. So um, this is, this is a, a really big next step challenge for a lot of the organizations that we work with. They're interested, now I have, they're able to pre-train a very large model with the hardware. Now they're interested in figuring out how to deploy it in an efficient manner. Uh, so we're working with a few different groups uh, on this. So um, we're working with uh, Qualcomm and uh, another group called Neural Magic. Uh, that does infer inference for yeah. these large models. Yeah. 
Amazing. Um, I was going to ask if you need the same yeah. data set to retrain, but it looks like you train on the pile. So I guess, yeah. I guess that's a no. <laughs> yes, you can actually shift here. Um, the obviously different data distribution means you have to be a little bit careful about how you do the retraining. So I think there are a few different things we've learned about different learning rate warmups, different uh, learning rate levels, I guess, yeah. because uh, if you're doing a big distribution shift, you want to allow the model to shift a little bit. And so you want a slightly higher learning rate. But like, for example, uh, you pruned you prune Llama 2 and we don't know what the original data set was. Yeah, I mean, well, so we, we kind of know that Llama 2 is a little bit similar to something Llama like one. Slim Pajama and, okay. and, and Llama 1. But okay. yeah, it's, it is definitely a different data set. Um, we, we do know that Pile and Slim Pajama have a fair bit of overlap in, in some things, but it is definitely a different distribution. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this is a lot of work that our applied ML team, uh, our applied ML team is working on. We're we're expanding that team currently, by the way. So Cerebrus is hiring for anybody who's who's interested in listening. You can check out our website cerebrus.net/slash/join-us uh, if you'd like to check it out. Yeah. Um, send us uh, send us your resume and we'll uh, we'll take a look. Yeah. Um, thanks for spending some time with us. Um, what, before we go, what's one uh, sure. Neurips tip? Uh, that you want to give to people if they're attending NeurIPS? Like, you know, how do you do NeurIPS right? How do you do NeurIPS right? Well, <laughs> so uh, it's grown roughly 5x in the time that I've been attending NeurIPS. So uh, it gets more overwhelming every year. So pace yourself. And I like, uh, I, I like that they've kind of backed off a bit on the talks so, and in favor of poster sessions. Like, just you got to go wander around. You got to talk to people. Yeah. You got to check out posters and and kind of let stuff sink in and and ask questions. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah excellent. Well, thanks so much for your time. Definitely. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. That's it. I think Cerebus is doing very interesting work here. Most people know them for their hardware, but I think they're doing very interesting work on the software and LLM trading side. And I'd be interested to have them on again in 2024. So next, we're going to go walk down the floor to Voxel51, which is not a company I've actually come across before, but it seems to be an interesting pair together with the next guest as well. So, so this is another one of those situations where I get to put two competitors next to each other and let you decide as to how they defer and how they talk about themselves. Sure, my name is Jason Corso. I'm the co-founder and chief scientist at Voxel. I'm also on the faculty of EECS and robotics at the University of Michigan. So Voxel 51 is a spin out of my lab. Uh, we make a toolkit for AI engineers that sits on top of things like PyTorch and TensorFlow. And I think of it like a model and data set debugger, right? The key problem that we face is not that we can go download data sets and then train models on them, or even with foundation models, go pull one off the shelf and then expect it to work exactly the way you want. The problem is really the co-development of a data set to then go and actually use one of those models or train or fine tune your own model. So 51 lets you represent the data that you're using or building alongside your models in a way that is extensible, visualizable, uh, and flexible so that you can write single Python lines of, like simple single lines of code in Python to do queries of your data sets and your models. Like, show me the corner cases where model A is outperforming model B and it's outdoors. Or show me you know, intersections in my BDD data. Or let me visualize my embeddings that are either just vision or point cloud based or multimodal. Yeah. And then visually interact with them with lassoing on the, on the 3D embedding. Is the concept of active learning 
still in vogue or is it like not cool these days? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, so 51 is a pretty flexible ecosystem of, of capabilities. The heart of it really is that data-centric data, data model of unstructured data. So we support images, video, and point clouds. Um, you can, in fact, there's a blog that one of my colleagues at Voxel 51 wrote maybe like a month ago on how to implement an active learning workflow yeah. in, on top of 51. So yeah. it's possible. It seems like it will lend itself easily. Yeah, exactly. It's plausible. I mean, the challenge with active learning is, you know, will just more data help or do you need the right more data? Of course the and right more data. I think that's data. kind of a, yeah. you know, it's, it's, you know it, that's the question, I think, right? So, yeah. <laughs> Is it primarily vision that you work on, or is it just anything? Yeah, so my my experience is in computer vision, mostly video understanding and image, image, imaging problems. Um, so that's where we got started. Uh, however, the software is pretty flexible, so you can add your own data type. Like, you know, we're considering adding audio, adding text, IoT, you know, like, like temporal signals. Uh, but right now, it's images, video, and point clouds. I've often heard it said that, you know, the best um, researchers and the best engineers are really the people who get their hands dirty in the data sets. Like, oh yeah, you have to get your hands dirty. And, and this is, so in some sense, the whole company exists yeah. because I was worried no one was getting their hands dirty enough, Yeah. right? Like they were just expecting to take a data set, take a model and then train it once and then out pops like your usable thing. Yeah. No, that's not the way it works, right? Yeah. It's a hard, this is a hard problem and building intuition, building a comfort or like an ability to take a 10 million sample data set and find like the 1,000 samples that are giving you this problem here yeah. is hard to do, and that's what 51 really lets you do. Yeah, yeah. What, what, it's a, what a name, actually, I, um, I have to ask. Uh, well, we had 50 bad ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the first, yeah. the one that was like actually good. Well, <laughs> that's, that's the way we say now, but the, the actual original way we got started as a company was as a video understanding as a service platform. Uh -huh. And so that's why, so the voxel in the name is in the space-time volume of pixels, yep. you know. And 51 was just to elicit ideas of Area 51. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, can you find the right voxel? Is it there? That kind of thing. We've subsequently way pivoted away from that, as, as most startups will do at some point in their, in their journey. Yeah, it makes the um, domain easier to buy. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anything else people should know about your, your platform, like top use cases, top customers that you always brag about? Sure. Well, I mean, it is open source, right? So as long as you have the key, three key assumptions, local data, one user, one machine, yep. there's no limitation on the machine learning that you can do with 51. When you want to violate one of those assumptions, like work on a team or work in the cloud or whatever, then we have an enterprise product that you would talk to us to purchase, basically. And that's kind Excellent. of like a Google Drive layer yeah. on top of the open source yeah. one. Very reasonable. Um, yeah, the only, I mean, we, we sell to, a lot of companies do use it. Um, I'm not going to name them here, but you can go to the website. There's a, a logo wall of those we can name. Yeah. Uh, but it would be great if, if you're listening to give us a GitHub star. Yeah. That's our, like, we're, we're here at Neurips to get to get users. Stars to for get swag. Stars, yeah. right? Stars for swag. <laughs> you got it. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. You published a guide to doing CVPR right. Uh, I did. We're, we're here at Neurips. Uh, what's, what would be your guide for doing Neurips right? So how to do Neurips right? I think there's some key things of doing large conferences right. One is, like, don't expect to do too much per day. Yeah. Right? So what I've always done, even when conferences were, were like, a, a quarter of the size or less, like, for any one day, identify five to ten papers in the morning yes. that I just want to go, want to understand for that day, right? So then, then I will make sure though to spend time with that poster presenter or with, uh, at the oral talk. To me, that's the key. And th and then at the end of that day, I do tend to write a summary from my own brain, my own notes of what I did, like what the key points were from for those papers. Yeah, uh, that's definitely one one winning strategy for a big conference like this. All right. Any, any other advice for people building, or you know, any any papers that you're excited for this year? Ah, uh, well, I mean, advice. Um, I don't know. If you don't know your data, then you don't know what you're doing. Is the way I would probably say it. Um, 
And indeed, like getting close to your data is, is part of the model building process, right? Like yeah. as, just to say it again, like I think of it as a co-development process of data sets and models, yeah. not of a model training problem. Yeah, I, I actually had a really interesting chat with, with someone from Cerebras actually, where they talked about how they were doing evals on their loss per, per region on a data set um, as they were training the, their large language models. Um, so that they could increase the exposure on a specific subdomain if they saw that uh, specifically like loss was not progressing as well in that particular subdomain. So it's a kind of like online training and like watching their models uh, evolve while they're training. Yeah, even on, I guess it sounds like on specific subsets of the data. Yes. Which, which is really important. Cool. Well, thanks so much for your... Thanks very much. Nice to chat with you, Sean. Coming from data engineering, it's pretty interesting to see this space develop. It's interesting also that a lot of them emphasize open source, which we'll see you with the next speaker, which is Brandon from Nomic. Who are you and what's Nomic? Yeah, hey everyone, my name is Brandon AI. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Nomic. Nomic is a company that does many things, but we have two main products right now. One of them is GPT for All, which is an open source ecosystem of low resource language models. So it lets you do things like run, you know, Mistral 7B fine-tuned on Open Orca on a MacBook or, you know, some esoteric GPU, things like this. The second product is a tool called Atlas. It lets you explore massive unstructured data sets in your web browser. Uh, since we're here at NeurIPS, a lot of people seem to respond to calling it massive clickable T-SNE as a service. Yes. I was actually thinking, was it, is it TSNE or UMAP? Yeah, so it turns out if you squint closely enough, they're the same algorithm up uh -huh. to a choice of low dimensional kernel. So we optimize the TSNE objective function. Well, one of our pieces of IP is we have the world's fastest optimizer for it. So if you take, say, the NVIDIA Rapids UMAP implementation, which is kind of the fastest version of this in the wild, off the shelf and run it on Wikipedia, on the biggest machine on AWS, it's going to take you a couple of days to actually get that map, um, and we can do it in about four hours. Oh, so, excellent. Yeah, it lets you make the maps part of your iterative daily workflow as opposed to having to wait a week to get them. Nice. Uh, we'll throw a video on this on the show notes, but maybe you could sort of uh, narratively show what you're showing. Like you showed a TikTok example and a Twitter example, right? Yeah. So these are really for visualizing massive multimodal data sets. Yeah, so the fundamental thesis behind the tool is that the shape of data that people have has fundamentally changed as a result of generative. Instead of having these like big Excel spreadsheets of tabular things, you now have vectors plus metadata. And we need to rethink visualization, you know, and the implications of that for the visualization stack. You are kind of seeing at the database layer, they're starting to penetrate with vector DBs and stuff, but I think there's going to be radical kind of implications for that change all the way up the stack. And so you can use it on, you know, getting back to your original question, Twitter data, TikTok data, images, sounds, text, anything that you can stuff into a vector, which is pretty much anything these days, uh, you can map and you can understand. Yeah. Can I bring my own custom embeddings and see the impact of that? You can. So there's two ways to get data into the platform. One way is bring your own embeddings, and then you just pip install Nomic. From Nomic import Atlas, and then atlas.map embeddings. You supply your embeddings, you supply metadata on top of them, and then a couple minutes later, you'll get a web link back to a map where you can click on it and fly around it. If you just have raw data, we have a bunch of out-of-the-box embedders that we develop and we work with partners to develop that you can use to, to map it out the box as well. Yeah, and this is not open source, but GPT for all is. So there are aspects of the platform that are open source. The entire thing runs on a graphics engine that we developed called DeepScatter. It's the only tool out there that can render a billion point scatter plots in a web browser. 
And to do that, you have to, again, kind of fundamentally rethink how graphics in the browser works from the ground up. That is available source, but unfortunately, it's not fully open source. It's okay. Um, yeah, I don't, you don't have to apologize for anything. I, I, I do yeah. have to. Um, you know, I wish we could open source everything, but like we are unfortunately subject to capitalism. And so we cannot. But in the limit, I would love to open source everything. Yeah. I also maybe heard you in another introduction talk, talk about this as like Looker for language models. Like what, what like elaborate more about that? Like, yeah. Are you, do you have a query language? Like what, what are you thinking about as the overall vision? Yeah, so I want to bring it back to the analogy of like the new shape of data disrupting the stack, right? So the first place we see it hitting is at the database layer. Things, you know, we see vector databases. There's a million of them nowadays. I think that that change is going to propagate all the way up the stack. And we are interested in, you know, what happens to the BI analytics, you know, visualization layer. And so really what we're thinking of this as is sort of like a Tableau for unstructured data or a Looker or Power BI or something like this, where we've built the entire visualization system with embeddings as a first-class citizen. And so that enables a lot of different actions. Um, some are already in the platform, some I can't tease yet, unfortunately. Um, but having embeddings as a first-class primitive enables a lot of like very, very useful things that you're not going to be able to get unless you have that. So, What do people use Atlas for? Like, Just maybe list out some more use cases that might not be obvious from people just thinking about visualization. Yeah, so we'll start with the most technical and we'll go to the least technical. Okay. Uh, a lot of ML engineers use it to understand and evaluate their models and training data. Yeah. So we just did some work with Hugging Face uh, on their Obelix data set, which they use to train their IDEFIX model doing some evaluation and training data analysis, um, looking at what areas yeah, we, of their- We actually interviewed those guys. I was in Paris and I talked yeah. to Leo and- And Victor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those guys are sick. Yeah. But yeah, so we worked with them on this and we discovered you know, a couple of things in their training data that they should have like actually cleaned out of it. There was like a bunch of you know, end of sentence token to be replaced that made it through stuff like this. Some really garbage content. Do you do content. anomaly detection? Or yeah. is that up to people to code themselves? Yeah, so the anomalies usually manifest as like the little moons on the outside of the map. Oh, sure, okay. And yeah. then you can just like hit them with the little lasso tool and stuff yeah, like yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. Um, but one of the things about the hugging face map that I found fascinating was um, because we supply like a topic model out of the box, you can look at things like are there topics where the loss tends to like cluster together? And for the hugging face model, there was this high loss mode in the poetry topic, which I thought was super interesting. And so I've got two theories for it. One is that poetry includes the distinct subversion of like common linguistic patterns. Oh, yeah. And so of course, language models will be bad at it. But the more perhaps optimistic theory is that poetry captures something that's fundamentally human that the machines have not uh... grasped yet. Um, the pragmatic version, I think, is probably what's happening. But I, I like to be optimistic. So. <laughs> Idafix is a visual data set, and you you are multimodal. Also, yeah. yeah. Okay. So they have poetry in there. Yep. Interesting. It's sort of interleaved web pages of like it'll be an image and then some poetry. Right. And things like this. So that's the more technical side. And then coming down to the less technical side, you know, a lot of our customer base at this point is like consulting type companies, um, and they find the product really useful for connecting domain experts with large data sets. So generally, what will happen is you'll have these domain experts, be it like a doctor or someone in regulation, someone with subject matter expertise that'll be handed this massive set of documents from a client and be like, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know what's in this. And so a couple of the consulting partners we work with actually now have a KPI that's like time to Atlas, where it's like how quickly from the data set hitting the company does it get to Atlas so that we can send an analyst to the map and they can start to explore it. And so we're really excited about enabling sort of traditionally non-technical people um, to explore and analyze these massive data sets with this no-code interface.
you know what you should do? You should hook up with uh, Google. Doesn't Google have a big set of like publicly available data sets? Yeah, so we've actually done yeah. a couple of collaborations with Google Cloud on yeah. some of those data sets. We can maybe link the blog posts or yeah, something. Yeah. In sure. Here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, awesome. Just NeurIPS in general, you've, you've been here a number of years. What do you look for when you come to NeurIPS? Uh, any tips that you have for people coming to NeurIPS? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, big tip is just like if you see someone cool, like they're probably nice, so chase them down and like have them talk to you. <laughs> Shove a microphone in their face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I love it. But it was like my second NeurIPS or something, I saw Oriel Vinyals walk by. And he had just done like the um, StarCraft stuff. Um, and I was like, okay, this guy is sick. He's doing some really cutting edge stuff. So I like ran up and asked him for life advice. And he was so down to earth and like chatted with me for a bunch of time about like modeling and life and you know, how to think about my career and stuff. And so like, yeah, if you see a hero, like shoot your shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very, very, very cool. Um, any papers that you're keen on this year or like maybe what really affected you in previous years? Oh, that's a good one too. Um, this year, I think Q Laura's here, which I think yep. is like a very, very Tim, interesting. Tim, I think is tomorrow. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a very interesting um, set of implications for like the low resource world. Can you elaborate? Yeah. So one of the things we think a lot about at Nomic is the accessibility of AI technology, and one of the things that's become very clear to us, and I think everyone this year is like, there's the GPU rich and the GPU poor. And so I think methods that make it so that anyone in the world can interact with this technology, like Q Laura are just like so, so, so valuable. And so I think any research into like low resource training of models and low resource deployment of models is just gonna be so good for everybody, especially in like the open source community that I really love to see it. So. Yeah, uh, you just reminded me. So talking about, we forgot to talk about GPT for all. Yeah. Uh, very, very uh, early win, I think in, in the overall space of things. But now it, more recently in my mind, uh, Llama CPP has come out to be its own platform. Yep. Uh, Old Llama is emerging as like a, a thing like, there's a bunch of ways in which people run models locally. Mm -hmm. How should people think about GPT for all in the context of all that? Yeah, so one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of the core contributors to Llama CPP actually work at Nomic. Yeah. And so I guess the, the operant advice here is just like play nice with open source, right? Like GPT for all is this thing that's going to be free forever for our community. We're going to keep trying to improve it as, you know, our Discord recommends and as people call for. But, you know, if we can do things like go and you know contribute to other open source projects that are high impact we're going to right and so the hope here is that like you know as economic pressures apply like open source stays collaborative is really really the goal for us i think okay cool well that's it any other last words uh, what, what are you looking for how do people find you yeah you can follow us on twitter at nomic underscore ai uh you can also find our website nomic dot ai um hiring engineers researchers what yeah any, I mean, we're always looking profiles? for yeah. super interesting people um yeah, come chat about interesting things in our Discord, really. Um, you can fish our website and stuff. But really, the best way to get involved is like make some maps, do some open source work. Um, like a lot of the people that we hired in this last kind of spree of hiring were like big open source contributors. And so, like, yeah, just give back to the community and then, you know, we'll try and find you and boost you. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, take care. I think the way that Nomic's embracing and supporting open source AI is encouraging and I think more companies should learn from that. But they're definitely far from the only open source AI company out there. Lightning AI is one of the oldest, I guess, if you can call that old in the space. And I happened to catch Luca, the CTO, at their booth and at Neurips, they were there to launch Lightning Studio, which is their new development environment. Hey, Luca. Welcome. Good to see that you guys are launching a new product today. Yeah, sure. It's super exciting. It's the result of... Many months, if not years, of work and realizations. So maybe let's establish a baseline. Most people will have heard of PyTorch Lightning. Uh, what was the evolution to Lightning AI? Yeah, so PyTorch Lightning is a very healthy, uh, has a very healthy community of people using it. We are 
5.5 downloads, about 80 million downloads in, um, sorry, 5.5 million downloads, of course, <laughs> per month, about 80 million downloads in total. And it's one of the frameworks that comes from the era of traditional, quote, quote unquote, deep learning, that is one of the main actors in the Gen AI space, because, for example, stable diffusion was trained using PyTorch Lightning, a bunch of models. PyTorch Lightning powers Nemo, from NVIDIA. Yeah, the, their custom so, chip design language model. Yeah, yeah. so basically, PyTorch Lightning has evolved and grown grown into Gen AI. And with uh, the release of 2.0, 2.1, we've tried to make it better and better for use cases in which you have very large models and you have a hard time not going out of memory. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and do distributed with, PyTorch Lightning has always been very, uh, uh, focused on distributed training. Mm-hmm. One of the things that he, he did the best, um, but when models get very, very large, I think uh, that's where we improved a lot this year. Uh, we also launched Fabric, Lightning Fabric, which is a, it's a framework, it's a companion framework to PyTorch Lightning, where you get all the constituents of the Lightning trainer, but now you can write your own training loops. So for people doing uh, very optimized stuff, very bespoke, uh, I don't know, you know, uh, collective calls, they want to place them where they want, they want to fully own the training loop, or they, they're doing stuff like reinforcement learning where it's not the traditional training loop, you can still do it with the trainer, but it's a bit, uh, uh, a bit more difficult. Then Fabric lets you just write your four loops, but will still abstract away strategies, precision plugins, the login, the aggregation of metrics, and all this stuff. I like to think about these frameworks as frameworks that reduce the surface area for mistakes. Because mistakes nowadays, well, a few years ago, cost a lot mistakes, of money. exactly, right? Yeah. They, they costed a lot of time to a, a PhD student. Right now, they cost a lot of money, so you don't want to make too many mistakes uh, there. Uh, and Torch Matrix is, is a third, third project that we have uh, that is very healthy and it's powering a lot of the metric computation again. You don't want to compute accuracy and aggregate it across a multi-machine job in a wrong way, right? Because you'll get wrong indications and it's really easy to do it incorrectly. Yeah. Uh, And this year we started doing... uh, Yeah, as you mentioned, these are mostly open source. Yeah, these are Uh, all 100% open source. I think Fabric in particular was pretty popular. Yeah, yeah. so Fabric has powered also uh, our uh, language model repositories, LitLam and LitGPT. Uh, basically, back when Llama was originally released, um, I uh, and me, of course, and the, 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 the weights were leaked. Huh? <laughs> the weights were leaked. Yeah, yeah the weights, yeah, exactly, exactly. But at some point, there was a, a model uh, being published by Meta as well. It was a GPL license, so we didn't really like that. And so we say, why don't we take um, uh, NanoGPT? Because I was working with NanoGPT at the time and turn it into Llama. And that started the whole thing of you know, minimal implementation, single file, you have everything there, you have no layers to go through to understand how your layers are. And, and that became uh, something that is, became very popular within many organizations. So it's still very popular. So the uh, LLM efficiency challenge, the starter kit had LeadGPT in it. And LeadGPT today supports many models, many different models. But it's very easy to get to the bottom of your of the implementation of every single thing. Yeah, so it's, it's very hackable. Yeah, it's one. And my philosophy is file. 
make it hackable because before you make it fast, yeah, right? Because more people can contribute to it, and we have contributors being very successful. There have been initiatives of models uh, being pre-trained using that, like Tiny Llama and uh, 360 AI, I think, uh, a few days ago came out, and they said they used uh, Lid Llama to pre-train their 7 billion parameter model. So it's, it's great. And a lot of those learnings went back into Fabric and back into PyTorch Lightning. Yeah. And this is how we we're kind of growing organically towards supporting the, this, AI use cases. There's an example of one of those learnings from uh, those outside implement, uh, outside usage of LitGPT, uh, oh, LitLama, I guess. Like Sorry, what, can you say? What's an example of one of those learnings that you yeah. got from like 360 um, contributing back? Uh, well, 360 is very, is very young Vanilla. in the yeah. sense that yeah, we, yeah. we just uh, learned, I think, uh, the day before yesterday that they <laughs> used us. Yeah, so it's great. <laughs> so it's great. Uh, we're, uh, we're very happy about that. Um, from, Tiny from Tiny Llama, they, 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 did, some they did some optimizations on top of our code. Uh, uh, and, and they trained, they trained a 1.1 billion parameter model on 3 trillion tokens. I think they're, I think still, they're still doing that. that. I, I don't think they're, they're done. And then some of the improvements that they made and we upstreamed it. Uh, to our, like for example, uh, I think chunk cross entropy, uh, some kernels that they were using. Uh, and then we were happy to see that even our data set that we optimized because it chunks your data and it, you know, it can stream very quickly, work for them. So it's, it's kind of a mutual thing that we're doing. And also all the quantization support, for example, Right now, Fabric and PyTorch Lightning support bits and bytes natively. Uh, and it's basically one of the few solutions where you can use quantization on any kind of model and not just the model that the original authors uh, decided to support. Yeah. So it's kind of flexible. But here today, I think the main thing we're doing today is launching our platform. Yeah, you just so, launched uh, Studio today. Yeah, exactly. Lightning Studio. Again, is a result of uh, many months uh, and years of work. It basically makes you build AI at scale, but it feels like it's your laptop. So to me, it's a, kind of the first time I've seen a, a platform not leaking the abstraction of orchestration on the cloud and so on. Literally, there's nothing to learn. Right? You, <laughs> you put in. VS Code in the browser and, and yeah, then you, you add have, all the... You can even connect from your local VS Code yeah. and code there. Yeah. You have the whole machine, like it's a whole machine. Yeah, it's a cloud development environment. Exactly. Right? Okay. And it's Similar built to around like reproducible environment. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But when you go in there, it's not that you need to build your uh, Docker container. You just go you in there, you present it with a machine, you can start working immediately. If you pip install something, and then you decide to switch instance type, your dependencies will carry over. Or if you decide to duplicate my studio, everything that I set up on that studio, from the environment to the data, the code, the, the checkpoints eventually can, uh, that yeah. I put there, you will find them. And so you will spend zero time setting up so your environment. Are you snapshotting memory? How does this work? Well, that's secret, uh, secret sauce. Secret sauce? <laughs> You're not <laughs> using containers, you said. Yeah, well, I mean, we do like what, if, if you think about it, then it, it all, it's not like, too yeah, complicated okay. fundamentally, but it's very complicated to actually get the perfect experience out of it. Like maybe describe your design, your design constraints. What were you optimizing for? We're optimizing for velocity. So we don't want people to spend time thinking about things they shouldn't think about. Yeah. Like when you're on, you're coding on a machine and you now want four GPUs, 
you should just be able to get four GPUs and keep working, right? Yeah. Without thinking about, oh, now I need to go to a console, spin things up, for my environment, attach drives. Like, these are all things you shouldn't think about. And again, goes back to uh, limiting the surface area for mistakes, right? Because you can do what you're good at and not do what yeah. you shouldn't mess with. Uh, it's like the fabric philosophy that's ex exactly. expanded to the dev environment. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, we're very excited. You can do small things like in Colab, except that your data is persistent and uh, you can switch off and switch on and everything will be there. Yeah. Um, or you can even train large language models. Yeah. Uh, what what are the, the larger customers doing? Uh, you know, what are you what are you doing for them? Because I feel like this might be targeted towards the smaller customers. No, actually, we run with, we, we work with very big financial institutions, um, and we are actually pre-training models ourselves. So, the scale at which you can operate is is pretty large. It's not like, it looks like something that you can do small stuff with, which yeah. is true. Yeah. It's super smooth there. But if you need to launch a job on 100 GPUs, you can just do it, provided that you have the machines. But we manage reservations, so we can we can target reservations. Or you can attach your own cloud account and negotiate your quotas with your cloud provider, and we'll just orchestrate on your cloud account. Right? Yeah. Any cloud providers you would shout out as... Uh, Particular, I mean, people know the big three clouds, but yeah. any other providers that you would shout out as very good partners to work with so far? Right now, we've been focusing on AWS. Yeah, we'll expand, of course, because uh, yeah, everyone think, needs uh, everyone else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, apparently, uh, Oracle's doing very well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we talked to Oracle. We talked to most of, of the cloud providers out there. To us, it's more a, a matter of sequencing. Yeah, uh, we have a very good relationship, of course, with AWS right now. They've been supporting us for the launch and so on. Uh, but surely we'll get into getting the best machines for for customers. Yeah. Uh, and in the near future, we'll also support uh, on-prem clusters in terms of orchestration, like Slurm as an orchestrator or as a yeah. scheduler. People have mixed feelings about Slurm. <laughs> well, yeah, but in this case, you now have to deal with it, right? Yes. Yeah, we yeah. take away the pain, yes. and you still can orchestrate on top of that. Uh, it's still not out, but it will. Uh, will come in a, uh, yeah in the near time. future. Yeah, we, we're already doing that with, with some companies. Yeah, so uh, I want to talk about that the workshop that you're doing on Friday. Yeah, uh, the efficiency challenge. Yep. Was it motivated by a paper? I saw I saw like a cramming paper that like what what what's the maximum you can do with one day of compute or something like that? Yeah. So um, we noticed because they uh, Mark Sarufim and, and and the other organizers. Uh, ended up choosing LidGPT as one of the models for StarKit, and we were happy about it, of yeah. course. Yeah. And so we said, yeah, what we can do together. And we ended up, and we really like the principle. So we believe you know, smaller models can empower uh, you know, people a lot, getting control and understanding how to extract value from AI. Um, and so I think there's a dire need of uh, consolidation, getting smaller, getting more efficiency, and getting the result you want in the shortest time as possible. And that that's how the velocity will increase and how eventually open source will, uh, will get there on par, if not beyond what's available in the closed source world. Uh, and so we are fully supportive of that. So the way we ended up contributing is where we maintained a public leaderboard 
And it was a nice experience because we integrated with Discord. There was there's a Discord channel. Uh, this is for the efficiency challenge Discord. Yeah, for yeah. exactly the efficiency challenge Discord, and we set up an agent that was running on uh, uh, a few of our machines, and people could submit to, uh, through a DM to the bot, so that the bot would then spin up a, work, uh, a job, run things in a queue, get back the results from L evaluation, and then essentially uh, get a ranking on where they were. Yeah, And that, I think, helped a lot motivating people to compete against each other, yeah. but in a very constructive way. And to be honest, in the first month, it's been very, very bumpy with that. Like, it was all new infrastructure and we were doing kind of it in spare time. So it wasn't the best of, uh, of uh, the experience. So together with the community that wasn't there, uh, they helped us figure out like what was not going well. And uh, I think at the end, we had like more than a thousand submissions that were successful. Like yeah. many more submissions that didn't, complete was a submission problems yeah. like user code problems that there were more than a thousand submissions that were actually fully evaluated yeah on that uh, leaderboard so, did you um, so the challenge is over but yep. I, I don't know if you've done the analysis on anything you to learn from the winning entries so uh, we've been uh, the the rest of the organizers uh, yes that they it, yeah. have <laughs> put a lot of effort in the next yeah. uh, three weeks uh, four weeks uh, to reevaluate everything run every, run the, the the first ones from scratch and they've done an amazing job um, and some of the code that we wrote for the public leaderboard ended up being part of this uh, evaluation infrastructure I was very very busy with the launch of course so I didn't participate there so I'll, I'm super I'll try curious to talk to Sebastian on, on Friday yeah yeah, yeah. okay uh, what 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 will be the uh, the the tales from from the winners yes but I must say that all the community has been super nice. They were be they were super constructive. I remember when Mistral first came out, there was a huge thread of people just getting in there, analyzing it, trying to fine tune it. It was so much energy that we definitely want to push it forward, and um, we'll create public studios with evaluation frameworks on them. And we want uh, to enable this kind so of so studios uh, are shareable, of course. Yes. Yes. Uh, that makes Not sense. Not only shareable between you yeah, and me, yeah, yeah, but yeah, also yeah, community wide. Yeah. 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 So uh, there will be a lot of things. You, you can go in there and use your free credits to just run the evaluation on your model. You can do that. Yeah, great. Um, so last question. I've been asking everybody this. Yep. Uh, you've been coming to NeurIPS for many years. Uh, what's, uh, what, what are your NeurIPS tips? Oh, wow. Yeah, go to posters, uh, which I cannot do. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, okay, I, so I've been, I've been to, like, you know, there's been three poster sessions so far. Yeah. The popular ones are just crowded. There's just no way. Yeah, I think there's not. Uh, yeah, I don't like to go to popular ones. Yeah, you just, okay. The less the popular. less popular ones. Yeah, and just talk yeah. to them. So I had so many super engaging conversations, even in Do topics like even if something is not apparently uh, something that you should focus on. Yeah, your your brain will oxygenate itself a lot, and yeah. typically after these conferences, I always come back with a head full of ideas and. Uh, so I, I would say get enriched as much as you can by interacting with people, having very honest conversation with them. Yeah. Uh, I, I had a to share. I had an off the record conversation with one of the presenters who said like, yeah, I don't like this paper I'm presenting. I don't believe in it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, that's really honest. Because <laughs> like they always submitted it months ago, right? Yeah, like, yeah, and, yeah. and since then the world has moved on. 
So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, but that that's part of the you know the struggle. I don't I don't know how it must be being a postdoc or a, uh, or PhD students or even a master's students. Yeah. Nowadays in AI, it must be like so stressful. <laughs> yeah, it is. Back in the day, it was a lot easier. <laughs> uh, you know, the prizes have got bigger. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. yeah. Okay, well, uh, thank you so much for your time uh, and yeah, congrats on your you. launch. Yeah, I think we'll, you know, uh, meet each other on the platform maybe. Yes, <laughs> I definitely will try it out. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Bye. A few of my AI engineer and ML engineer friends checked out Lightning Studio and they were pretty impressed. So I'm personally interested to check it out next year. But last and not least, I want to give the mic to Jay Alomar of Cohere and LLM University, but more importantly, of the Illustrated Transformer and is now writing a new book. We're here with Jay Alomar, educator of many things. I've learned so much from you. Uh, it's, I lit literally, it's like one of those moments where like at New York, you just kind of see someone walking. And I'm like, is that Jay? <laughs> and then I, I like had to like get your attention a few times. But it's it's so nice to, to finally meet you. It's uh, great to meet you <laughs> and great to be here and sort of meet all kinds of brilliant folks of watched your, your, your stuff and sort of been watching the revolution and how you're helping sort of crystallize people's thinking about this new domain of AI engineering. And yeah. so I think the title is, is very helpful as, as categorizing that, that class. Yeah, trying to do for my audience what you, you do for just general ML education, uh, which, is, which is, I think, I think something that you've, you've really done an incredible job of. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's wonderful. It's what the community needs, definitely. As, as machine learning and, and AI sort of goes out of research and goes into industry. And exactly. People, it's a different yeah. persona different background there's the kind of people one of the reasons I'm doing this recording is like the kind of people that follow my stuff don't come here yeah uh, and they sh maybe they shouldn't right like this this is some of the some of this is like too in depth true uh, but I'm curious like true. you know so you've been to many neurofs like what is your general take of the vibe what are people talking about what's top of mind there's a lot of LLMs that's in, that's interesting <laughs> to see that suddenly is, a lot of interest right yeah. yes yes that is uh, let's say maybe a possibly a new uh, development in NURPS. Uh, that's the area that's, that's, that's growing. Um, and a couple of interesting keywords or groups or directions are diffusion, even diffusion for text models. That's, that, that's yeah, there was a paper on that yesterday. Yeah. I'm not too... Uh, what's the point of diffusion for text? Don't people want to stream things out? Well, I mean, if you think of, like, on the application side, autoregressive generation has some problems. So if you the model makes a mistake with token 5, you're stuck with that problem. Yes, that's what that's, Tree of Thought solves, which uh, the Tree of Thought guy was here. It's, yeah, so it's, yeah it's, it's one, let's say, one avenue. Yes. Um, but it's like maybe if you if the model does not uh, fall within uh, in a mistake in that way, you can unlock new sort of different applications. But that also all, all the image generation stuff, that's really yeah. where. Well, I'll, I'll uh, make a plug, I uh, actually had a, so there's a lot of house parties that happen after New Rips, which yeah. is fantastic. <laughs> I ran into a guy from Mid Journey for the first time. They have this new storytelling oh, uh, section, yeah. and they are actually exploring text diffusion because of storytelling, because okay. you have to generate a coherent story just yeah. like you would an image. True, true. So, that's, so I would buy that as a use case. That is fascinating. And then with the agent stuff, like, if you're interested in, in the future of agents, which is, there's a lot of the reasoning stuff. The, yeah. the reasoning research in NeurIPS will most likely sort of inform the upcoming, what's going to happen in agents next. So chain of thought, tree of thought, that domain of research uh, for me is, is, is very fascinating because it's going to be applied very quickly. Yeah. The React paper comes out, 
it's in LangChain. Everybody's sort of using <laughs> it, and everybody has a has a sense of what agents are. But it, that really shows you the potential of what they're going to be in the future. Uh, we're still in early days on, on, on agents. Any other like top of mind uh, sessions? Did you go to the Chris Ray one this morning? I thought that was pretty cool. I, I have uh, I have that one and a couple of the other sort of keynotes. I'll I'll be rewatching them. Yeah. Uh, but mostly I'm just talking with people, yeah. recording video. That's been my and sort of trying to orient myself. It's an overwhelming amount of content and yeah. people and, and posters and, and talks. And so I've been yeah looking at visualizations of you know these are the papers at Neurops. This these are the ones that could be interesting to you. Yeah, people have published like TSNE things of, of them, and uh, yes. it's good. But like it's not as good as just kind of seeing the vibes. And I, I actually think the conference organizers do a good job of curating like yeah. what the you know oral session papers should be. True. You know, like True. I, I generally found them like generally very insightful. I just found out about DataConf from one of the oral sessions. Okay. I don't know if you've uh, seen them. No. They're, no. they're f effectively a new ImageNet. Oh, nice. Which is like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> new benchmark. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, like it's to me, I'm taking it all in. So it's it's impressive how many people do so much work and you've never heard of them. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> and they're conversant in all the techniques, all the papers, all the stuff that you see online. Yeah. They're yeah. just not online, that's and they, true. they just do research quietly, and then once a year they show up here. Yeah, and sometimes you meet somebody here and you're like, and they would mention they worked on that other paper and it's a paper that you're very familiar with. And uh -huh. then you go into their Google Scholar or something and you're like, I've been reading this person's work for, yeah. for years, but the name never really sort of specifically popped up until you meet them in, in, in person. So that's why it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely an interesting experience. Yeah, um, no, no particular order, but have you had those, like any underrated person you would call out as like, hey, everyone should pay more attention to the work that this person's doing? One thing that comes uh, across, which is why workshops are, 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 are good, and we can, we can get into that sort of uh, later, is David Bao's work on interpretability and editing language models and editing their knowledge was, was one thing that sort of really stood out to me after I've you know, met, met David and sort of heard about, about, about his work. Editing by editing weights? Yeah, yeah they have a method of, of editing the model, exactly. Yeah. Yes, there was a, is this the one where they played Go? This is and Rome. They, they flipped a, a this is where they convince a model using that method that the Eiffel Tower is in Rome and not in Paris. Um, and then they have sub subsequent methods uh, of, let's say, if you make 100 edits like that, the model degrades. So they have subsequent work on, okay, this is a better method to do many more of that. But also things like, I don't know if you've seen like logit lens and sort of where in the model is this token being suggested, like at is it at layer one or is it at layer five or is it layer that localization is, uh, is 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 interesting work. Yeah. Uh, so you do all these interviews on your YouTube. We'll send people there. Is this part of your work at Cohere? Or A little bit. How yes. does this? What is your deal? Yes, <laughs> that's true. So these a uh, bunch of them go on the Cohere YouTube channel yeah. um, and the Cohere socials as well. Uh, so yeah, my work at, at, at Cohere, I get to learn in public basically. I love so that. Cohere builds language models for embeddings, re-ranking, and generation. And through selling them, I get to see what how industry is solving problems with them. And that, to me, to me is, is very fascinating. So to see the technology coming out of research and then how it goes into industry uh, and how people use them, how people sort of need to be educated on, on the best ways of, of using them. That that view, to me, is uh, something I'm, I'm lucky to have. Yeah, yeah, it's a good job to, to get, to be honest. If you love that stuff, you might as well get paid to do it. You probably don't know this, but I actually have written a book on learning in public, and I am a big advocate of getting developers and engineers to, to learn in public. Well, you do it so well. Yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah this, is, this is my way of doing it. Um, my final piece is, uh, you know, you, you've written a lot of foundational work on, like, Transformers. A lot of people are talking about uh, the state space models and what happens after the Transformers. Um, do you 
have personal views on that? Not yet, not yet. I'm on the lookout. So yeah. yes. there are always new ideas that, you know, there's maybe poster number 502 here that nobody paid attention to. Yes. That maybe in six months we'll, we'll see that, oh, it crushes everything else on... Uh, so that is always something you can never sort of expect. Yeah, uh, my fa favorite fact about the Transformers paper is it, it itself was not accepted as, it was like a poster-only paper, right? <laughs> That's true. And I, it was I don't like, know the story behind it, that. It was a big deal for machine translation. Yes. But it's like, okay, yeah, there's a, there's a cool translation It's one of many, paper. right? Like, yeah, yeah we already like have Bert. One <laughs> new attention method. We had yeah. Badano attention, and we had Luong attention, and like now we have also you know one more. But then Bert comes out, and it's like, okay, this is more yeah. than translation. And then GPT yeah. comes out, and it's like, oh, this can generate text. I'm still missing a good survey paper on everything that happened since attention is all you need. Like, yeah. the, the evolution towards the modern decoder-only paradigm. Okay. And, and I, I feel like someone needs to write that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Everyone's too busy inventing new things to, to stop and write that's like, true. what happened. The, because it's a massive thing. And there are a few people who, because there's a lot of work on different kinds of attention and yeah. different, that for the transformer specifically, how to improve it for this problem yeah, yeah. or for that problem. But one thing that I'm doing is rewriting the illustrated transformer with the ideas that have stood the test of time since then. So it's like yeah. six years after, which ideas? So people are using rope. Flash attention. Uh, flash attention. Alibi. Uh, and then, yeah, rope and alibi, let's say positional encodings, localized attention. So some ideas that yeah. are, people are continuing to use over group and over. Group query. Multi-query multi, multi -query and group multi-query, yes. And so then sliding window. So. Not yet. So it's in Mistral, but I, you know, I need, we maybe need to see it in more work. My conspiracy theory about Mistral is that so the Mistral paper heavily features sliding window attention, okay. and everyone is like, bullshit. Like, yeah, come on. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> because you see it. You saw that for two years after the transform, everybody was proposing new ideas. And if you put this uh, in the transformer, it does better on this. But then what stands the test of time? The vanilla transformer really stood the test of time uh, and did better than even a lot of these enhanced, quote-unquote, enhancements. But these ones, let's say, stood the test of time. So these, this rewriting is going to be, you know, part of the book I'm, I'm sort of currently writing. Are you writing a book? Yes, writing a book for O'Reilly called uh, Hands-On Large Language Models, including this as a chapter. So if you want an updated illustrated transformer, that's going to be a yeah. part well, of it. When you launch your book, uh, you should come on and do a full episode with us. Amazing. Yeah, yes. and, yeah exactly. And then uh, just general Neurips tips, you know, as, a, as an attendee, like how, like if people are coming for the first time, yes. what would you advise them to do? I really love the visualization by, I posted about this by, by Hendrik Strobel uh, and Ben Hoover of the TSNI of all the papers, but also it's clustered. So if you're interested in language models, He's that is drag it over. clustered. I use that for my planning. It's, it's so useful. Like these things, <laughs> Are, are absolutely incredible. I got to meet Hendrik, and they have so a lot of very interesting ideas there, and helps you sort of um, orient yourself. And I've, I've also seen work kind of like it, but take, where you can do semantic search um, on, so you can say, you know, agent papers, and it doesn't need to match the actual keywords. With Cohere, we have a demo on uh, RAG on Europe's papers as well. So you can ask a question. You're like, okay, I'm interested in LLM and efficiency. It'll say, okay, this paper, this paper, this paper. Uh, and it's retrieval augmented sort of generation. So these are the three tools. But I think we need a lot more of these, <laughs> of these tools uh, to make sense of... Uh, yeah, of I need it for the meetups too. You know, in the in your conference app, there's all these like meetups for very specific things. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I started one for uh, for Singaporeans because I'm a Singaporean in, nice. in tech, and uh, yeah, there's just a, there's a bunch of very very specific like running meetups, like nothing to do with tech specifically, but like you know, this is also okay. a social event, right? Like that you're okay. Yeah, meeting, meeting you wouldn't happen to be at MNLP. No, why? Because some people did that because it was like 
last week and uh -huh. some people went to MNLP in Singapore uh -huh. and then flew back here. That's a tough call. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. rough. Yeah, That's rough. rough. Well, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to have you on, pleasure to meet in person. So good to meet. Love yeah. your work. Thank uh, you. Keep, uh, keep, keep doing <laughs> any, it. Any calls to action for people if, uh, while you're Well, here? I'm Jay Alamar on, on Twitter and uh, YouTube and we have LLM University. Yeah. LLM.University. Like I collaborate with Luis and, and Muir Amar to Yeah, some of the best uh, YouTube like very short, but like very comprehensive, authoritative. I'm very lucky to collaborate with these with these uh, with these folks. Yeah, uh, it's, it's 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 incredible. But uh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks for doing all that. With you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, and that's it for our New Europe's coverage and for Latent Space Pod in 2023. We are still doing a listener survey, so if you are listening through here, you're definitely a big fan. We definitely want to hear from you. What do you like about the podcast? What do you want to hear for 2024? We've got a couple of really good episodes already recorded for the start of 2024 so we're going to start the year strong and come out to the one year anniversary of latent space so thanks for all your support have a wonderful end of the year and we'll see you soon dj hit the outro